cue sappy music. Hey there, Fighting for the Faith podcast listener. Just want to remind you at the top of the program here that Fighting for the Faith is listener-supported radio. You know, no, the music isn't working. Kill the music. Yeah, sorry. I see other guys use sappy music. I, uh, bad idea. Remind me to talk to you after the program. Anyway, just want to remind you, Fighting for the Faith is listener-supported radio. That means we depend upon you, your generous gifts, financial contributions to keep bringing this program to you. If you don't support us financially already, visit our website, fightingforthefaith.com. Click on one of the friendly yellow buttons. Fill it all out. You know what to do. Or if you would like to do the traditional thing, you can make your check payable to Fighting for the Faith. Send that to Post Office Box 508, Fishers, Indiana, zip code 46038. Okay, now you can play your music. Yeah. Enjoy listening to the program. I enjoyed making it. I hope you enjoy listening to it. Here we go. It's time for another edition of Fighting for the Faith, Tuesday, May 8th, 2012. Wasn't sure how the voice was going to sound today. Been fighting a, a throat flare-up of sorts. Thank you for tuning in. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith. My name is Chris Roseborough. I am your servant in Jesus Christ, and this is the program that dishes up a daily dose of biblical discernment, the goal of which, help you to think biblically, help you to think critically, and help you compare what people are saying in the name of God to the Word of God. There is no shortage of crazy things being said out there. We open up our Bibles and do the comparative work. And uh, oddly enough, I don't seem to ever run out of material. That is, uh, people who are very well-known celebrity types within the visible church who are mishandling, abusing, twisting, and not correctly uh, teaching God's Word, the Gospel, sound doctrine, and other things. As a result of it, they're often in some weird tangent. And, uh, well, we're trying to call people to say, like, wait, pause, hit pause and stop and listen. That's what we're trying to get you to do. And then open up your Bible and see if that's what the Bible really, really, really says. Some stuff is easy to spot. Other stuff takes a little bit more work. Uh, what I've noticed is that there are some people who teach false doctrine uh, who some of them, they just like skating along the surface of the scripture and and let the brute force of their charismatic personality carry them into the uh, the stratosphere. Others, on the other hand, they, they take time to really construct and carefully craft their false theology. And it all comes down to bad hermeneutics. That's what it boils down to. But uh, false gospels don't save, by the way. They actually send people to hell. So what's at stake here? Well, your eternal soul. And uh, we try not to take that glibly. In fact, uh, it's the reason why I come to the microphone day in and day out is to uh, is to encourage you all to be in the Word, to listen to the Word, and to find pastors who will actually care for you as a Christian, as an individual, as a human being, and and rightly handle God's Word 
correctly teach the scriptures, constantly point you to Christ, properly distinguish between law and gospel, and uh, and do their job. When uh, they think they've got other things that are more important to do, well, then you're in for a world of hurt and all kinds of trouble come as a result of that. Just a reminder that on Thursday night, uh, Thursday night, May 10th, so two nights from tonight, um, I will be speaking in Cicero, Indiana, at uh, Harbor Shores Church in Cicero, Indiana. The If, if you want details, go to worldviewbootcamp.org. And, uh, you know, and I'm speaking, the name of my, uh, name of my lecture is resistance is futile. You will be assimilated into the community. And, uh, it, I guarantee it's going to be a controversial topic, not because I'm trying to be controversial, but because what I have to say and the historical correlations that I will be drawing, they are going to be controversial, but it's a topic that I think needs to be uh, spoken of and spoken to, and uh, the historical information that I'm going to be unfolding, unpacking, and delivering at uh, um, at the May 10th event is uh, definitely going to be worth your time. If you're anywhere near uh, driving distance to uh, Cicero, Indiana, which is in the north part of central Indiana, I'd love to see you there. Doors open at 6. It's free to attend, and uh, I think I begin lecturing at 6.30, so... Um, and there will be a question and answer period. I have 75 minutes to make my case. I, I kind of, as I'm uh, putting this all together, I feel like an attorney. You know, I've got Exhibit A, and exhi- I won't be delivering it in that in that format. But it's, I feel like I'm building a, a legal argument. If anyway, so uh, let's. Uh, man, I I am so far behind. It's not even funny. I'm looking at all of the stories that I want to get to today and going how. On earth, am I going to get to all of this? In fact, I'm. It's it's so bad. I I'm trying. You know, every edition of Fighting for the Faith, unless I specifically say, um, there's an there's actually an underlying theme. I actually try, you know, try to put everything into particular theological categories. Um, and so that, you know, when I'm teaching, you know, when a single edition of Fighting for the Faith, when you when you come away from it. There's uh, takeaway points, and I try not to state them, uh, you know, in in a concise thesis. From time to time, I I, I do that though. But every now and then, we have these uh, uh, potpourri editions of Fighting for the Faith where I can't I can't organize everything into a theme, and I I can't quite seem. To, but I, I everything needs to be talked about, and so potpourri being, uh, I think that's French for stinking pot. <laughs> Yeah, somebody. I had. I I remember the first time I did a potpourri edition of Fighting for the Faith. Somebody sent me an email said, "You do know that that's French for stinking pot." It's like, great. Yeah. Um. That. Well, it works. So I I I fear that today's edition of Fighting for the Faith is going to be that. It's going. You know, I'm just looking at everything that I want to do. I do have several things kind of teased out into a particular subject, but I don't even know if it's going to work. <laughs> it's like, I just, uh, let's just throw caution to the wind. Today is going to be the oatmeal against the wall edition of Fighting for the Faith. We're going to just take all kinds of weird stuff, throw it against the wall, and see what sticks. That's what we're going to do. So this will be the oatmeal against the wall edition of Fighting for the Faith. That means I've got a Patricia King update. I've got a Stephen Furtick update. Oh, yeah. Uh, <laughs> I've got a Pete Scazzaro update. No kidding. Um, he Last week was his... Uh, 
Emotionally Healthy Spirituality Conference, and uh, he did these little videos, uh, vi- you, know, you know, talking about the things they were discussing there. Um, I've got a uh, Phil Johnson article I want to get to. I got an article that I wrote over the weekend I want to get to, and then we're going to go back down to Phil Pringle's church for our sermon review. Um, Jake Elliott um, has <laughs> you got it. You gotta, oh man, uh, this poor guy, Jake. I mean, he is he's got more work than I've seen a lot of people doing in discernment uh, uh, w- blogging, and I do hope that uh, he's got a comfortable beanbag and some Cheetos down there. Um, but, uh, he, he's, he's the, runs the C3, uh, church watch blog and he's, he has informed me that I have got to uh, do a, an, a sermon review for the Easter sermon that was preached at C3, Phil Pringle's uh, church. And <laughs> he posted on my wall and I was watching it going, this is an Easter sermon. I, <laughs> it, so here's the deal. We've already announced the winner of this year's worst Easter sermon of 2012. So, uh, this I is I I don't know how else to put it. We've got an honorable mention that we're gonna, and it's John Bevere who's uh, doing the uh, so-called preaching in this Easter sermon, and it's just <laughs> just so bad. Oh man. Anyway, so that's what we're gonna do today. It like I said, it, we're just gonna take the oatmeal, throw it against the wall. Who knows what's gonna stick? There, I may be able to figure out somehow in the middle of the program to tease out some kind of a coherent theme to this thing. But it just is not looking that way. So you just make yourself comfortable. That's all I got to say. Make yourself comfortable. We've got a lot of, in fact, I got email I got to do too. We got a lot of ground to cover. So let's just dive into the program. We'll see where we end up at the end of it. And uh, of course, you know, fuzzy bunny slippers do enhance your uh, listener experience. If you do not have a pair of fuzzy bunny slippers, visit fightingforthefaith.com and look along the left hand column. I have uh, links to several different. A pair of uh, fuzzy bunny slippers that have passed muster here at Fighting for the Faith, and of course, it, if you're it's really hot in your neck of the woods, do keep in mind that fuzzy bunny slippers at that point detract from your listener experience because they cause your feet to sweat, and that's just not good. And of course, if you'd like to enjoy an adult beverage, we don't have a problem with that. Keep in mind the biblical prohibition is against drunkenness. You do not want to abuse this great gift that God has given us. That's just silly. Anyway, let's. Do this. Got a couple of emails from Pastor Gervais Nicholas Edward Charmley, from Hanley Stoke on Trent. I gotta tell you though, it, it, it me picturing Pastor Charmley typing like this on his keyboard—that's a weird mental picture. Anyway, uh, Pastor Charmley writes. He says, "Dear Chris, listening to Mark Driscoll on the April 26th edition of F4F. So, you know, the, by the way, that's the shorthand for Fighting for the Faith. F4F. The, and uh, somebody had sent me a, a, a tweet on Twitter going, you know, what's F4F? <laughs> okay." Obviously, somebody's following me on Twitter who hasn't listened to the radio program. Anyway, F4F, if you ever see anybody use the shorthand, F4F, that means fighting for the faith. So Pastor Charmley says, all right, listening to the April 26th edition of Fighting for the Faith, or F4F, I must say that I agree there are people out there who, who are me and Jesus types. In particular, you have those people who go to church, who go church hopping 
and never seem to settle down anywhere. You find them in, in most cities. We live in a very individualistic culture. As we know, this is a danger found in some conservative uh, uh, Christian churches in the United States and is seen it's worst in the fringes of fundamentalism. Fred Phelps, for example, has a church that's basically made up of his family members. So on the other hand, though, liberalism goes to the opposite extreme. It tends to focus on the community to such an extent as to lose sight of the individual who is often crushed in the resulting tyranny. Interesting that you would say it that way, Pastor Charmley. Um, but you're right. That's exactly correct. You find people who are crushed in the tyranny in a liberal church that basically focuses only on the community. Hmm. Sounds like I might be talking about this on Thursday. Anyway, thus at the beginning of the last century, a speaker at the annual assembly of Staffordshire Congregational Union gave an address on Christian individualism to counter the liberal contention that all salvation is corporate. And make no mistake, the, lo the logical end of an exclusive emphasis on the community is the denial of any salvation that is not fundamentally corporate. You know, Pastor Charmley, you, you, again, you're making a great point here. That's exactly right. And a lot of people don't uh, realize that philosophically, in European history, um, not so much here in the United States because of uh, of our founding fathers and the de the Declaration of Independence, but in Europe, especially, um, you know, counter Reformation or not Reformation, counter Enlightenment philosophy, um, you know, Rousseau and and guys like that, um, they philosophically denied the existence of the individual and basically posited this idea that it's the community that is the organic thing. That becomes the underlying philosophical framework for fascism, by the way. Um, so, you know, that's something to keep in mind. But uh, Pastor Charmley is absolutely right here. Um, you know, when you start, when they start going down this, this path, what ends up happening is, is they end up denying any salvation that is not corporate, which is what we saw Catherine Jefford Shorey talking about a couple of years ago. Anyway, he's going to continue. So Pastor Charlie says it's both and 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 either or. Driscoll knows better than to say Jesus loves me is false. I, I mean, I know only one hymnal where the personal pronouns are plural, and that it, that is hymns for the little flock, the exclusive brethren hymnal, rather amusingly, a very sectarian book. I have a collection of some 45-plus hymnals that I've checked. And even then, this is because of a theory about corporate worship rather than anything else, i.e. that corporate worship is always to be us. Paul speaks of the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me, and we should have no hesitation to say the same thing. Now, when the church is undervalued, we must insist on the corporate element in salvation, that we are saved and joined to the church but the individual should never be lost. God cares for individuals. The church is made up of individuals. And incidentally, one of the things that is leading to the undervaluing of the church today is multi-sites like Mars Hill. The irony is, is that the model of the church that is becoming dominant in evangelicalism attacks the local church, which is the proper expression of the universal church. From two directions, on the one hand, breaking it up into small groups, for most of its meetings and therefore robbing it of the whole church midweek meeting, and on the other hand, submerging it in a vast network of multi-site campuses where the vast majority of the teaching is done by an absentee teacher on a screen. Mark Driscoll, I would submit, is himself undermining the local 
church. Well said, Pastor Charmley. And by the way, we have a Charmley, uh, Pastor Charmley twin spin here. He sent me another email. This one's entitled, uh, God is not a free substitute for booze. <laughs> That's the subject heading. Pastor Charlie Rice says, Dear Chris, listening to the teaching from Blackaby on the 5th of May 2012, I was somewhat amused to hear echoes of the Toronto blessing nonsense in the speaker's comment, do not be drunk on wine. He seems to have the idea that somehow people under the influence of the Holy Spirit are changed from who they really are. Now, there is some truth in that, and yet there is a great deal of difficulty in the presentation that makes God a cheap substitute for booze. Uh, people get drunk to escape, and if our religion is a form of escapism, then we have serious issues. Christianity does not represent an escape from the way things really are, but a glorious acknowledgement of the way things really are in the face of the world's denials, and that needs to be emphasized in the face of the world's idea that Christianity is escapism. Wow, good points. Blackaby is a mystic, as you say, and like all mystics, he's seeking after an unmediated encounter with God, an encounter which must, in the final analysis, be non-rational, therefore primarily emotional, and that's not biblical. Again, great points, Pastor Charmley. Thank you for the emails, and uh, they're great as always. Please keep them coming. All right, moving along. You know, it's something wrong with going from a Pastor Charmley email to Patricia King. <laughs> it's like steering your car into a tree. Oh, man. All right, so Patricia King's latest video is entitled Heaven's Frequency. <laughs> what is all this frequency stuff coming for the Extreme Prophetic Channel? I don't know. Here's Patricia King to explain. See if you can make heads or tails of this. All throughout mankind's histories, there's been sounds from heavens, or we could call them frequencies, sound frequencies. Heaven is pure. It's perfect. It's the atmosphere where God lives. It's uh -huh. a, it's it's full of authority. It's where his throne. <laughs> full of authority. Okay. Throne dwells, and so the frequencies of heaven, the sounds of heaven, are sounds of love, of light, of goodness, of power, of authority, of holiness. I mean, we could just go on and on and on. We read in Revelation chapter four where where John heard a sound. It sounded like a trumpet, and it was yeah, okay. was blowing. And in that sound, there was a voice calling him up into heaven. In Acts chapter 2. Oh, no. <laughs> this is, you could see where this is going. Oh, man. You see that, that when, when the, those in the upper room were together, they heard the sound of a mighty rushing wind that was coming from heaven. It was a, the coming of the Spirit of God. And oftentimes there'll be a sound, a, a, a frequency that's released from heaven when God is doing something new in the earth. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You know, I just, you know, using the um, special technology that we have here on the uh, Pirate Christian Radio Cave. Um, yeah, I well, we were able to record some of these frequencies. See, see if any of this sounds like it has it's dripping with authority to you. Here, here's some sounds that we recorded. It's kind of trumpet-like, don't you think? Whoa. 
Well, that one's got authority, huh? sounds like Flipper. So we think that that's the frequency of heaven. We, we had to tune into special frequencies in order to, to pick those up. But you know, anyway, we just want to pass those along. I mean, did you feel any authority while we played that? In this day and hour, there's sounds in the earth that people don't know what they are. There's very... You know, there's a variety of answers from different scientists and how people are hearing sounds in different nations and sounds like trumpets or groanings and that. And the prophets, in fact, some of the prophets on xpmedia.com have have received insight from the Lord. <laughs> Sorry. I just... <laughs> Her claiming that they've got profits at XP Media. They have gotten, you know, inside information from the Lord. Right. Yeah. I've got a bridge I'd like to sell you in New York City, too, if you believe that. We've included that in this playlist as to what that possibly might be. Yeah. But what I want to talk about right now is how we can align ourselves with the frequency of heaven. The fre Please share. Frequency of heaven, the sound frequencies and the light frequencies, the anything that comes from God, we can be aligned to because he lives inside of us. The Christ in me, in the earth, is the same Christ that sits in the throne of heaven. And so I'm connected. I'm connected internally from spirit to spirit with the frequencies of heaven. But the Lord says... Really? I mean, serious. By the way, this this is kind of a, a tough doctrine to find uh, things on. There's not a lot of systematic theologies that spend time discussing it. But the name of the doctrine, by the way, is called the uh, the mystical union. Uh, it you can look a lot of guys use the Latin phrase the unio mystica uh, that has to do with the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. This is a this is not what the Bible teaches regarding the mystical union that believers share as a result of being indwelt by God the Holy Spirit. And these conclusions that she's drawing, they are just not taught in the Bible. This is just an extrapolation, a, a, a speculation on her part. But there's no clear passages that say any of this. Will you allow your soul to be aligned? Will you allow your soul, your mind, your will, and your emotions to come in just like a tuning fork? You know, when, when you, when you ding that tuning fork, it makes, makes this sound and you can, you can match the sound of the keys that you're playing or, or the sound that you're trying to match to with that tuning fork. And the Lord says he has a tuning fork. There's a, a frequency that comes from his throne, that comes from his very being in heaven, into the earth, that is inside your spirit, that can align your soul, your thinking processes, your belief systems, your, your emotional choices. Everything about your physical body even can be aligned to that frequency of heaven. How do we align ourselves? How do we align with those frequencies? Yes, tell us. Well, how? How? Through our worship. Oh. Every time, yeah. So, through our worship, we can align with those frequencies. Time you worship the Lord. And By the way, no Bible passage says any of this, but I think it's you know I think it helps to you know add those sounds that we we believe here from uh, you know we recorded it with our high tech equipment here in the Pirate Christian Radio uh, studio. 
lovingly referred to as the pirate cave. But um, I think it's helpful to play that behind Patricia King while she's waxing eloquent about whatever this frequency stuff is. Just, just cut off the world around you and just focus on him. You're aligning with a frequency because you're adoring him. You're putting him in his rightful place above all else. Mm -hmm. Every time you say, oh, Lord God Almighty, you are holy. You are my God. You are perfect in righteousness. You are actually choosing to align your soul with the frequency of his perfection. Right, yeah. The Word of God is another way. Every time you proclaim the Word of God, meditate on the Word of God, make your soul align with the Word says, you are aligning yourself with the frequency of heaven. What would it be like if you were to align in your worship, your words that you speak, the words, Word of God that you receive as far as your belief system, your actions that you align, everything with God's purposes? What you are would you, be walking in sync, just like he knows. What are you even talking about? I mean, what if I can't get it in, you know, aligned? Do I need to go see somebody, you know, that will help me with my spiritual alignment issues? It, you know, maybe they can have it, in, you know, when I, next time I take the you know, Pirate Christian Radio truck, uh, FJ Cruiser in for, you know, to have its wheels, you know, the tires rotated in alignment done. Maybe I can ask if they have a spiritual alignment department there, so that you know I can get in line with the in alignment with the frequencies of heaven. What is any of this? Enoch did. It says Enoch walked with God. It could say that Enoch walked with the frequencies of heaven. It, <laughs> no, it cannot. <laughs> oh, oh, man. <laughs> These are people just who will refuse to have their consciences bound by what God's word says. They think that God's word is somehow a playground. It's silly putty. You can just bend it into any shape or size you want. Really, Patricia? So we can say that Enoch aligned himself with the frequency of heaven. I don't think so. It says Enoch walked with God, and he was, because the frequency took him right up into the glory. Yeah, right. <laughs> The passage doesn't say that, Patricia. You're adding to the Word of God. And by the way, there's specific curses mentioned in Scripture for people who do that. I want to invite you to posture yourself before God, to connect, <sighs> Whatever. connect every part of your being to the frequencies of heaven. Oh, my gosh. Can I also invite you to do one more thing? No. You know, xpmedia.com. No, we're done. Yeah, yeah. we're going to switch into a commercial. I'd rather listen to this. Hang on. Somehow I think those frequencies are so much more godly than whatever Patricia King is talking about. for that okay we are <laughs> i told you we we're going to be throwing oatmeal against the wall today i try to warn you anyway if you would like to uh, email me regarding anything you've heard on this edition or any previous editions of fighting for the faith you can do so my email address talk back at fighting for the faith.com or you can ask to be my friend on facebook it's facebook.com forward slash pirate christian or you can follow me on twitter my name there at pirate christian we'll be right back i <laughs> it doesn't get any better than this by the way it's downhill from here. Broadcasting from his mother's basement.
while in a beanbag eating Cheetos. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith. presents Church Day Select. Siri, what are the chances of hearing Rick Warren actually rightly handle and correctly teach God's word? That will take some serious number crunching in order to figure out. I'm not a cray supercomputer. I'm just an iPhone. Are you sure you want me to calculate that? Yes, I'd like you to try to calculate that. Okay, I'll give it my best shot. Calculating. 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 Ouch, my processor chip hurts. Calculating. Calculating. Okay, I think I've got the answer. Here you go. There is a better chance that Harold Camping will predict the end of the world than there is of you hearing the Bible rightly taught by Rick Warren. You spend some serious time staring at a digital screen, probably around eight hours a day. There's work, video games, surfing the web, and every other function of life on all our devices. Hey, we live in an age where everything is digital. It's just par for the course, right? But have you ever thought about the impact all that has on your eyes? All that screen time is going to affect your vision. Maybe now, maybe later, but it's gonna happen. We're talking everything from eye fatigue and headaches to eyes that are so dry and irritated they could make even the techiest dude alive want to go analog. It's pretty hard to do the stuff you love if your eyes are feeling exhausted or burnt out. But it's not like less time in front of a screen is an option these days. So what do you do? It's like you need some crazy awesome invention that can help your eyes stay fresh and protect them so that you can get the most out of your digital consumption. Introducing Gunner Optics. Gunners are these super sweet computer glasses that make it easier and more comfortable to enjoy all your digital activities. There's seriously some NASA-grade stuff going on here, but basically, they have this uber-smart lens technology that improves your visual experience, protects your vision, and helps prevent wear and tear on your eyes. Gunner's yellow lenses filter out harsh artificial light, which helps you see better, and they relax your eyes and stop them from straining constantly. Plus, they help combat all those other nasty side effects of staring at screens all day, like eye fatigue and dryness. Your eyes do a lot for you. Return the favor with Gunner's. For more information about Gunners and to see a video with me wearing my pair of Gunners, visit piratechristianradio.com forward slash Gunners. That's G-U-N-N-A-R-S. Again, piratechristianradio.com forward slash Gunners. And thank you for your support. We're back. Uh, Warning. When somebody talks about your need to get in alignment with the frequency of heaven, it doesn't mean anything. That has nothing to do with Christianity. Run away quickly. 
just a reminder, Fighting for the Faith is listener-supported radio. That means we depend upon you and your generous gifts and financial contributions in order to continue to bring Fighting for the Faith to you as well as to the world. And you can partner with us financially by visiting our website, fightingforthefaith.com. When you get there, you will see two friendly yellow buttons. One says Donate. The other says join our crew. When you join our crew, you are signing up to automatically contribute $6.95 every month to the ongoing work and mission of Fighting for the Faith and Pirate Christian Radio. Of course, if you would like to specify the amount that you would like to contribute, you can do so by clicking on the Donate button, or you can make your gift payable to Fighting for the Faith, and then send that to Post Office Box 508, Fishers, Indiana, zip code 46038. Oh, yeah, we're going to be doing a Stephen Furtick update using our traditional music here. Now, I do know that I need to send some of y'all lyrics and some kind of audio that you can do if you like to take your crack at this. I will not be playing Edgar's version you today. so vain you probably think the bible's about you you're so vain you probably think the bible's about you don't you don't you You think the Bible's about you. You're so vain. Don't you? Don't you? All right, enough torturing you with my bad falsetto. Anyway, um, Pastor Stephen Furtick, boy, he's like Patricia King. He's the gift that keeps on giving. I don't think this guy is. I'm. Well, let me put it this way. I think that when he opens up the Bible, I think the first page, I think he's absolutely torn that out and replaced it with a mirror so that when he, he opens up the Bible, the first thing he sees is him because he somehow is uh, unbelievable. He's like the energizer bunny of narcissistic eisegesis, a.k.a. narcissus. I mean, and here is just another example of it. This is uh, found on the uh, Stephen Furtick blog. You can find this at stephenfurtick.com. And they put up a a two-minute clip of Stephen Furtick's sermon from this past week. And he's preaching. The sermon topic is Mr. and Mrs. Better Half. And this is supposedly a word of encouragement from Pastor Stephen Furtick to the folks there at uh, Elevation who are single and are, you know, are not happy in their singleness and are really wanting to find Mr. Wright or Mrs. Wright or however that works. 
I've been married for so long, I forget, and myself. Anyway, if so, so here's the deal. What you're going to hear him do is not only mangle God's word, he's going to allegorize Jesus' crucifixion. No kidding. I am not joking. It's... It's absolutely breathtaking. Somebody needs to uh, let him know. Just take him, a, take him aside and say, listen, um, Stephen, you know, I don't know if you know this, but the Bible's about Jesus. It's not about you. You might want to reconsider how you're reading it. I mean, I think the folks over at Southern uh, Theological Seminary in Louisville, Kentucky, apparently he graduated from there. I think they need to uh, rescind his degree and send him to remedial hermeneutics class, uh, especially after this. Watch what he does. Well, listen, here we go. When you're going through a hard journey, especially when you're single, and I know you're like, what right do you have to tell me? You know, um, you're, you're not single. You're married now. I, I wasn't always married. I mean, I can relate. That's what I'm saying. I haven't been married like 40 years here. I still remember what that's like, and, and you're hoping, and you're wishing, and you're wanting, and you're waiting, and all that. I understand. And when you're in that season, it feels like I'm never going to find anybody. Nobody's ever going to look my way. My marriage is never going to get better. My husband's never going to turn around. I'm praying for him, and it's not happening. But let me assure you, on the basis of God's word today, okay, you hear this, preacher. When you get on the other side, and you see God's faithfulness in your life. If you'll be obedient to him, I promise you that the, the payoff... No, no gospel. If you're obedient, well, that would rule everybody out. Because <laughs> nobody this side of the resurrection is really, truly obedient to God. Yeah, you don't believe me? Just open up the Ten Commandments and do a real, honest self-evaluation as to how you're holding up on those. Okay? You will find that, yeah, you're not doing it. You're not obeying. So already, the, so the solution is: if you're struggling, if you, you know, if if you're, if this is really tough, and you know, being single is for the birds, and you know, I'm telling you on the on based on the word of God, all you got to do is be obedient, and then you'll find the right person. <laughs> well, you might as well check into a convent or a monastery at that point because, good luck, yeah, obedience, okay, yeah. Of his promise, if you'll stay faithful, will be so great in your life that it won't even be worth devoting a footnote to how hard the journey was in comparison to how good the Lord is. Yeah, okay. It's not even... Yeah, the applause lines. He's, he really spends a lot of time crafting those. Worth mentioning. You know, in the New Testament, Paul would go on to say this. I can say... Watch what he does here. I mean, talk about completely taking a passage of Scripture and dumping out its biblical meaning in order to pour in some really vapid thing. Here we go. ...that the sufferings of this present time are not even worth comparing to the glory that will be revealed in me. He said, these momentary afflictions are but light in passing. They're working in us a far exceeding weight of glory. You see that? Not even one verse about how hard the journey was. Your journey's hard right now? I understand. You're, you're in the middle of Good Friday... And, and you feel like you're going through some sort of crucifixion? <laughs> really, Steve? Really? So, who knew? I did not know this. I, you know, I, I was not aware that being single is really the spiritual equivalent to Jesus' crucifixion. Yeah. So, I mean, there you, you feel like you're being crucified. You know, you, there, you know there, each day that passes by, it's like you are being crucified. It's just like Good Friday, because that's what—that's why the, those passages in the gospel accounts regarding Jesus' crucifixion, they were all there to show you 
how to bear up under the pain and suffering of being single. I mean, like I said, I'll make the point again. Somebody at Southern Theological needs to basically revoke his uh, MDiv and say until he actually shows some, he has to go back to remedial hermeneutics class, something like that. I mean, because, I mean, I'm sorry, but the fact that, you know, he went to Southern and this is what has been produced, it, it tells me that this he's he's gone his own way despite what he was taught. But I think Southern Theological Seminary needs to make a point here. And again, you know, rescind his, his MDiv until he uh, attends remedial hermeneutics classes. Listen again. Journey was. Your journey's hard right now? I understand. You're, you're in the middle of Good Friday, and, and you feel like you're going through some sort of crucifixion. But you know what? The death of Jesus lasted three days. He's been risen for 2,000 years. And what does that have to do with being single or married again? I'm, I lost the connection there. And the day that evil won is but a footnote, but an hour in the span of the redemptive story of God's power. And so it shall be in your life. <laughs> oh, man. It's just, <laughs> I mean, it's just horrible. I mean, serious. I mean, somebody needs to take this, this man aside and say, this book ain't about you. Stop reading yourself into it and stop doing what you're doing to these texts. I mean, seriously, you're going to take a reference to Jesus' death and resurrection, allegorize it, and basically that's going to be the point you're making in a, you know, to somebody who's suffering as a result of the fact that they're not satisfied being a single person? You have got to be kidding me. Talk about an adventure in missing the point. Yeah, remedial hermeneutics class for you, my friend. Or, you know, the soup Nazi would say, no preaching for you. Moving along. Here we come. Walk down the street. We get the funniest looks from everyone we meet. Hey, hey, we're the monkeys. And people say we're monkey around. We're too busy singing to put anybody... Yeah, that means we're going to be doing a Pete Scazzaro update. Where we want to do what we like to do. We don't have time to get restless. There's always something new. Hey, hey, we're the monkeys. And people say we monkey around. But we're too busy singing to put anybody down. Yeah, now you're probably wondering why why the monkeys? Well, here's the deal. Pete Scazzaro, if you're not it's been a while since I've done an update for him. Pete Scazzaro is the author of, well, a series of resources made available to purpose driven churches entitled Emotionally Healthy Spirituality. And he recently did an emotionally healthy spirituality leadership conference type thing out there in New York. And uh, well, here's the thing. When you take the time to study what it is that this guy has done, he's basically taken Roman Catholic, monastic, that would be monks, mysticism, and repackaged it in a purpose-driven, uh, seeker-driven, evangelical-friendly uh, uh, format, so to speak. The same content, same ideas. It's, well, just Roman Catholic, monastic mysticism repackaged. Now, what's really funny is that a couple years ago, he was one of the featured speakers at uh, Rick Warren's Radicalis Conference out there at, at Saddleback Church in uh, in Orange County, California. 
And um, I was watching when he was you know, getting ready to present, and what happened to have you know be in one of those chat roomy type things that was made available for the Radicalis conference, and I made a point of saying there on well the chat board that was available that. Pete Scazzaro is repackaging Roman Catholic monastic mysticism. Why is this being taught to Protestants? That was my, you know, the gist of my question. And no sooner did I post the question when one of the forum moderators was quick to respond. Oh, that's not exactly true. No, no, you're you're over. You're you're not you're not correctly correctly um, uh, telling people about what Pete Scazzaro is about. That's not really the right way of putting it. That was what the forum fo- person there at Saddleback said. Now, I would like to <clears throat> present to you uh, Pete Scazzaro's two-minute video update, you know, from day two of the Emotionally Healthy Spirituality Conference that he just conducted out there in New York. And um, it, you, it, the first minute will be pretty, well, you know, standard, you know, not too interesting. About minute two, things get interesting. You know, listen in. We had a fantastic uh, first day of the main conference today. That's Pete Scazzaro. Uh, at the conference, we talked about uh, uh, the great challenge before us in uh, in tr- people's lives being transformed in the church. But we really did two main, main things today. We talked about genograms, uh, going back to go forward, how our families of origin and cultures have impacted who we are today and what it means to be. Hey, I've never heard of a genogram. Have you heard of a genogram? By the way, the, the video is, it says EHL uh, 2012, day two wrap-up. They had a, there was a, a pre-day for certain people. So this is the second day of the conference. First official day overall, because the, the first day of the conference was only for a select number of people. But anyway. Born anew into the family of Jesus. It was phenomenal. As people are here again from all over the world. From Estonia to Latin America to, to Germany, and, and just looking at genograms from all the different states around the Union, all different colors and races. It was tremendous. And we talked about. Yeah, I still don't know what, what is a genogram. I mean, and I've never heard of that. The call to be yourself, and God's call for us to differentiate, to come out of our families and be the unique man, woman God's called us to be. Uh-huh. And to be able to take leadership, to not look for other people to, to give us a sense of who we are, but to lead out of a solid self, not a pretend self. And, uh-huh. I have no idea what any of the psychobabble means. And uh, it was just great. Then we talked about emotionally healthy skills to, to live in the new family of Jesus. And we finalized the day by just talking about uh, clarifying expectations and all the implications of that. Workplace, church, school, friendships, family. It was, it was great. So we, we had a great first day. And tomorrow we're looking forward to launching into uh, monastic spirituality, the contemplative spirituality. Yeah, uh-huh. so he, <laughs> so the, we're, tomorrow they're going to launch into monastic spirituality, contemplative spirituality. Hmm, monastics. Hmm, Roman Catholic monastic quote spirituality. And here, listen again. Chip's family. It was it was great. So we we had a great first day. And tomorrow we're looking forward to launching into uh, monastic spirituality, the contemplative spirituality. And uh, right now people are at the, at the contemplative prayer room that, that Rosie and uh, Helen, two folks in our church, are just you know, tremendous calls from God in their life have, have built. And it's like, it's like creating a monastic community in the middle of Queens, New York City. Huh, wow. So he's excited because they created an ad hoc monastic community right there in New York. It's been a great day. So looking forward to tomorrow. And again, thanks to so many of you for praying. Yeah, there you go. Um, so yeah, 
like I said, um, Pete Scazzaro has repackaged Roman Catholic monastic mysticism uh, for the purpose-driven set. Um, yeah, I have no idea how on earth Roman Catholic monastic mysticism and contemplative spirituality, which, by the way, contemplative prayer is all about discovering the, div the divinity that you are, how that is even remotely well compatible with historic biblical Christianity, let alone with any church that's supposedly part of the Protestant Reformation. <laughs> Why on earth we would go back to Roman Catholic monastic mysticism is beyond me. Um, because, well, it can't save you and it deceives you. Anyway, moving along. Talking about mysticism. From the Letter of Mark blog, this is my own piece I wrote called How to Hear God's Voice 100% of the Time. Yeah, yeah, just in reacting to a lot of the nonsense going along, this this false idea of the mystical union, that somehow, you know, God is going to speak into my heart, all that kind of stuff. Um, you know, from the stuff that we get from Blackaby and others, I, I think it's imperative that we tackle this this these false ideas head on. In fact, I'm going to be devoting more time in the program to covering this topic um, with some other resources, some primary resources where evangelicals are teaching this. Today we're not going to do Blackaby, by the way, though. But anyway, um, here's what I wrote. You can find this at letterofmark.us, L-E-T-T-E-R-O-F-M-A-R-Q-U-E dot U-S, letterofmark.us. How to hear God's voice 100% of the time. <clears throat> I'll see if I can do this infomercial stuff. <laughs> <clears throat> are you struggling to figure out if those whispers that your pastor has told you to listen for are really God's voice or a case of gastrointestinal hallucinations caused by a bad batch of pepperoni pizza? Are you tired of going through the whole rigmarole of filtering those voices in your head through a six-point discernment grid to try to ascertain if that's the Holy Spirit speaking to you or proof that you need to make an appointment with a shrink? Have you read and reread Blackaby and still haven't got the foggiest notion as to tell how to tell where God is working in the world so that you can join him? Well, if you answered yes to one or all of these questions, well, then I've got great news for you. I have discovered a simple and surefire way for you to hear God's voice. And the best part is that it's 100% guaranteed and totally biblical. Here it is. Are you ready? Number one, acquire a Bible. If you don't have a Bible, then you can read it for free on the Internet at BibleGateway.org. I recommend the English Standard Version for both readability and translational accuracy. Step two, open the Bible. Step three, begin reading it. Read it with your mind engaged. Pay close attention to grammar and context. Take notes. Set a goal to read three to ten chapters per day. That's it. Now, if you do those three things, you will be hearing God's voice every single time that you open the Bible. No guesswork. No need for a six-point discernment filter. No nagging uncertainty about whether you're hearing God's voice or something else. Now, how can I be so sure and certain this works? Well, I'm glad that you asked. One day, while I was reading my Bible, I read 2 Timothy chapter 3, Verses 16 and 17. Here's what it says. All Scripture 
Okay, all scripture, graphics, all writings, all all biblical writing, scripture is breathed out by God, and is profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, so that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. Now let's break break this down. Number one, this passage says all scripture is God breathed. Emphasis on the word all. All scripture is God breathed. That means that God the Holy Spirit personally inspired every one of the biblical authors. In other words, you can know with certainty that every word of scripture contains God's thoughts, and when you're reading the Bible, you're hearing God's voice. Two, this passage says that the man of God would be complete through the reading, learning, knowing, and applying of Scripture. Notice that this verse doesn't say that the man of God would be incomplete through his reading of Scripture and that he'd need to augment the Scripture with whispers, subjective feelings, internal voices, direct revelation, dreams, or visions. No, it literally says that the man of God would be complete. The Greek word that is used here is hartios, and it means complete and are fully fully qualified. So there's nothing else needed for the man of God. The scriptures are totally sufficient. Three, if point two wasn't clear enough, 2 Timothy 3.17 drives the point home by stating that through the written word of God, the man of God is equipped for every good work. There are no good works that God would have you do that would require you to rely on anything other than his word to make you complete and fully equipped for the task. The Bible is sufficient to make you complete and fully equipped for every good work. You don't need whispers. You don't need dreams. You don't need visions. You don't need trances. You don't need a glory cloud. You don't need to figure out how to experience God. You don't need contemplative mysticism. All you need is the written word of God. The Bible is sufficient to make you complete and fully equipped for every good work. And because every word of Scripture is God-breathed, you can know with confidence that you're hearing the voice of God. Now, you may be asking yourself if it could truly be that simple. Answer, yes, it really is that simple. In that same vein, I'd like to read for you one, maybe two, blog posts from the uh, uh, Pyromaniacs blog. From teampyro.blogspot.com, Phil Johnson writes, and the name of his blog post is entitled, What is Written? He writes, So I was in Minneapolis Saturday for Todd Friel's wretched Psalm 119 conference, and David Wheaton uh, broadcast his weekly radio program, The Christian Worldview, live from the conference venue. David graciously featured an interview with me in one of the segments, and at one point he asked me to give a thumbnail sketch of what I would be speaking on later in the day. The theme of this year's Psalm 119 conferences is the Holy Spirit, and one of my messages dealt with the question of how the Holy Spirit communicates truth to believers. Should we expect him to reveal fresh prophecies through intuitive impulses, voices in our heads, and other means of private revelation? I said, no, nothing in Scripture instructs us to seek that kind of guidance. Instead, we are commanded to order our lives by the Scriptures. Deuteronomy 5.32 says, You shall be careful, therefore, to do as the Lord your God has commanded you. You shall not turn aside to the right hand or to the left. 
Joshua chapter 1, verses 7 through 8 says, Only be strong and very courageous, being careful to do according to all that the law that Moses my servant commanded you. Do not turn from it to the right hand or to the left, that you may have good success wherever you go. This book of the law shall not depart from your mouth. You shall meditate on it day and night, so that you will be careful to do according to all that is written in it. For then you will make your way prosperous, and then you will have good success. Psalm chapter 1, verses 2 through 3 says, But his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. He is like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in its season, and its leaf does not wither, and all that he does he prospers. First John chapter 2, verses 5 through 6 but whoever keeps his word in him, truly the love of God is perfected. By this we know that we are in him. Whoever says that he abides in him ought to walk in the same way in which he walked. Then uh, Phil continues, he says, The Holy Spirit's ministry is to enlighten our understanding of the written word. First John chapter 2, verse 20, But you have been anointed by the Holy Spirit, and you have knowledge. First uh, John chapter two verse twenty seven. But the anointing that you receive from him abides in you, and you have no need for any that anyone else should teach you. But as his anointing teaches you about everything and is true and is no lie, just as he has taught you, abide in him. First Corinthians chapter two verses twelve through fourteen. Now we have not received the spirit of the world, but the spirit who is from God, that we might understand the things freely given to us by God. And we impart this in words not by human wisdom, but taught by the Spirit, interpreting spiritual truths to those who are spiritual. The natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are folly to him, and he is not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned. Psalm 119, verse 18, Open my eyes that I might behold wondrous things out of your law. So then, again, the Holy Spirit's job is to enlighten our understanding of the word and to motivate our obedience so that the word of God, not some metaphysical extra biblical revelation is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. Quoting Psalm 119, 105. That's more or less what I said in answer to David Wheaton's question about how the spirit guides us. Well, less than 15 minutes later, my phone dinged, letting me know that I had received a fresh email. Here's what the message said from the anonymous email person. I was just listening to an interview with you on a local Christian radio station. It seems that you have elevated that which is written above the mystery of Christ that is hidden in us. Perhaps I have misunderstood. I hope so. There was nothing written for the common man until when? The 16th century. Maybe sooner. Even so, literacy was widespread. But here, but here we are the seed has not been obliterated. I submit that you could consider the inner working of the spirit. That is a mystery. Indeed, just as surely as the union of sperm and egg produces life, so the spirit produces new life and that eternal, and we have no dispute there. Lean not on your own understanding. Let the spirit have his work by faith. After all, God is a spirit, and they that worship him must do so in spirit and truth. <laughs> Yikes, he writes. So here's his reply. God himself elevates that which is written to the position of the highest authority, and he has expressly instructed us to not go beyond what is written. See 1 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 6, which says, I have applied all these things to myself and Apollos for your benefit, brothers, 
that you may learn by us to not go beyond what is written, that none of you may be puffed up in favor of one against another. Scripture is the only truth that we have that is God-breathed, and the truth of Scripture is sufficient for all of our spiritual needs. If someone heard my abbreviated answer to David Wheaton and thought I was saying the Scriptures are more authoritative and more reliable than any mysterious inner working of the Spirit that involves extra-biblical truth or inspired intuition, they emphatic, then emphatically, yes, you heard me correctly. Like many charismatics, my interlocutor seems to imagine that the principle of sola scriptura is hostile to a robust understanding of the Holy Spirit's work in the daily lives of Christians today. That idea is perhaps the single most deadly error in the vast menagerie of problems associated with the charismatic movement. I think uh, Phil Johnson spoke correctly there. And you know, here's the idea, is, is that th- they have a false doctrine of the mystical union. The mystical union does not give us inner light uh, or anything like that. It's not that's not what's going on. It the God the Holy Spirit enlightens us to understand what is written. And if in that guy by the way, he was wrong in saying, "Well, we didn't have the, you know, we didn't have the written thing until the 16th century." That's not true. We've had the written word of God you know, long before the church. You ever heard of the Old Testament? <laughs> I mean, serious. Actually, the, the the church existed in Old Testament times. It just wasn't called that. But the idea is this: is that you know we've from the beginning had the written word of God, and, and it's 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 patently false to say that we didn't have the word of God. So you got the entire Old Testament prior to the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ, and then you have the writings of the apostles telling us about the life, death, resurrection, and teaching of Jesus Christ, who, by the way, is the fulfillment of the Old Testament. In so many levels, I mean, that's exactly what the whole story is about. It's all about Jesus. And Paul himself, you know, set, asked the question, how are people to believe unless somebody is sent? And how are they to believe unless somebody is sent to preach to them? That's what the missionary endeavor is all about. So where the where the church forges into darkness, where the church has never been before, a preacher must bring God's word with him and proclaim the word, preach the word and preach the gospel. And there God draws to himself those whom he's elected for eternal life, right? And he brings them to repentance and faith and trust in him for the forgiveness of their sins. The church there is born in that area. And then they are discipled and taught God's word. That's how it's always worked. Where the preaching is, where the preaching of the word is, the word is there. Where there is no preaching, there is no word, and there is no church. How are they to believe unless somebody is sent and unless somebody preaches, right? That's Paul's argument. Kind of, you know, on the heels of this, Dan Phillips, uh, his his uh, blog post, uh, what's this from today? Yeah, the, he, uh, Dan Phillips, he has a blog post called The Sufficiency Challenge. And I think this is actually... Uh, you know, kind of apropos considering that, you know, this is one of those themes that we're working on for today. Dan Phillips writes, he says, I think the truth of the sufficiency of Scripture may be the central biblical doctrine under attack in our day. And I completely agree with him. This is absolutely where the real battle is being fought. Of course, cults, heresies, and false religions attack it as they must. What is sad is to see all the friendly fire that well-meaning obsessives have leveled with a boldness that seems to be on the increase. 
I've come at this topic at sundry times and in diverse manners, including uh, here, here, and here. He puts the links there. If you want to see, you go to teampyro.com, teampyro.blogspot.com. So anyway, Sunday was part three of our Thinking Biblically series at CBC, and the sufficiency of Scripture was one of the foci of the sermon titled, What Should We Do With the Bible?, that and well, once again, too many other things. I lift out a part of the sermon part that part that was actually wasn't in the notes, and I grant that my efforts may not have convinced everyone, though I will keep trying. But virtually all remotely sound Christians will at least give a nod to the proviso that yes, 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 the Bible is God's word, and yes, it's some kind of sufficient and no, 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 hemi, demi, semi, kind of sort of revelation can't displace it. Well, not formally anyway. So agree with me on this. If you really believe what you say you really believe, this should be no problem. Here we go. <clears throat> so here's from his his notes. Agree heartily to believe in and use the scriptures as scripture as befits what it claims about itself. Treat it like it is what you say you believe it is. God's actual, real, live, inerrant, personal, living, and powerful word. Approach it as you would actually approach such a treasure as you possess to affirm to a found in Scripture. That is, pledge yourself exclusively to seek God and His will according to Scripture. Pray only for light to understand the Scripture. Commit yourself only to regard what comes from Scripture as God's binding will for you. Set aside all the yeah buts and evasions and distractions and special pleadings and 14th hand stories and traditions for a time. Set yourself to seek to seeking and being in a church that emphatically teaches the Bible as if it were what it says it is, that devotes itself to the exposition and proclamation and practice of Scripture as God's inerrant word without the endless distractions of entertainment and fads and dancing bears. Devote yourself exclusively to studying Scripture, all 66 books. Set yourself to master every book, every chapter, every verse, every Every word. Seek perfect understanding of all Scripture and Scripture only as containing what God really wants you to know. Memorize all of it. Finally, and at the same time, commit yourself to practicing Scripture perfectly. All of it. Master it and be mastered by it exclusively. If it is not Bible or a valid straight-line application of the Bible, do not claim it as any level of special revelation from God. Then and only then... When you have plumbed the full dimensions of the scripture in every direction, when you have conformed your thoughts, attitudes, affections, and behavior to it, when you have ransacked every corner and crevice and entirely emptied the cupboards and completely cleared the shelves, then if you find the scripture is truly insufficient to lead you to know and serve God in this life, contrary to its own self-testimony, then look me up. Deal? Deal. I think he makes a great point. And the point is this. We've got all of these people running around claiming visions from God. From Patricia King to Perry Noble, who claims to be casting vision, you know, for his particular church. The, in fact, vision casting and special revelation are an integral part of the whole seeker-driven movement. We got people running around claiming, God told me this, God led me to do that, God did this, and God did that. They're getting, and we're, we got books out there from people telling us that we need to hear, we need to hear whispers. We got, 
we got Bill Hybels and Rick Warren giving it. Well, one of us gave us a six-point discernment grid to filter the whispers of God through. Another one gave a seven-point discernment grid, and neither one of them agreed with each other. This is all nonsense. All Scripture is God-breathed and is profitable for teaching, correcting, rebuking, and training in righteousness that the man of God may be fully qualified, complete, equipped for every good work. There is nothing that God is going to call you to do that Scripture will not prepare you for. You want to hear the voice of God, treat the Bible as what it claims to be, the God-breathed and errant Word of God. Plain and simple. Put that other stuff away. It's misleading you. And it's causing you to trust your experiences over the Word of God. Repent of it and come back to Scripture. And here's the good news. In the Scripture, you will read of the forgiveness of sins, won for you by Jesus Christ on the cross, for all of the false prophecies, false revelations, false words of knowledge, and false visions, and false dreams that you've listened to and promoted yourself. There's forgiveness. Repent, be forgiven, and bear fruit in keeping with that repentance by going to the Word of God and it alone. It alone is the only place you can go right now to hear the voice of God. And it's sufficient. It will prepare you and equip you for every good work. It will not let lead you astray. For truly God's written Word is a lamp to our feet and a light to our path. All right, we are up on our second break. If you would like to email me regarding anything you've heard on this edition or any previous editions of Fighting for the Faith, you can do so. My email address, talkback at fightingforthefaith.com, or you can ask to be my friend on Facebook. It's facebook.com forward slash pirate Christian, or you can follow me on Twitter. My name there, at pirate Christian. When we get back, sermon review from down under. A late entry from our Easter sermon series. Oh, man. We'll be right back. We don't need to rethink Christianity. We need to rediscover it. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith. Pirate Christian Radio Theater presents Death of a Salesman. Are ye a salesman? Why, yes, I am. Can I interest you in some... You're listening to Byron Christian Radio. <laughs> the spring and summer travel seasons are just around the corner. And the last thing you want to do is pay more for your airfare, hotel, and rental car than you need to. That's why Pirate Christian Radio is proud to have Cheapo Air as one of our featured advertisers. Cheapo Air has over 18 million flight deals, low airfare guarantees, and 85,000 negotiated hotel rates around the globe. And if you visit our website, piratechristianradio.com forward slash cheap, we have a promo code that will save you an additional $10 off of Cheapo Air's already low prices. So visit piratechristianradio.com 
forward slash cheap. Write down the promo code, click on the web banner, and book your spring or summer travel today. And remember, a portion of your purchase at Cheapo Air will go to support Pirate Christian Radio. That web address again is piratechristianradio.com forward slash cheap. Thank you for your support. You spend some serious time staring at a digital screen, probably around eight hours a day. There's work, video games, surfing the web, and every other function of life on all our devices. Hey, we live in an age where everything is digital. It's just par for the course, right? But have you ever thought about the impact all that has on your eyes? All that screen time is going to affect your vision. Maybe now, maybe later, but it's gonna happen. We're talking everything from eye fatigue and headaches to eyes that are so dry and irritated they could make even the techiest dude alive want to go analog. It's pretty hard to do the stuff you love if your eyes are feeling exhausted or burnt out. But it's not like less time in front of a screen is an option these days. So what do you do? It's like you need some crazy awesome invention that can help your eyes stay fresh and protect them so that you can get the most out of your digital consumption. Introducing Gunner Optics. Gunners are these super sweet computer glasses that make it easier and more comfortable to enjoy all your digital activities. There's seriously some NASA grade stuff going on here, but basically they have this uber smart lens technology that improves your visual experience, protects your vision, and helps prevent wear and tear on your eyes. Gunner's yellow lenses filter out harsh artificial light, which helps you see better. And they relax your eyes and stop them from straining constantly. Plus, they help combat all those other nasty side effects of staring at screens all day, like eye fatigue and dryness. Your eyes do a lot for you. Return the favor with Gunners. For more information about Gunners and to see a video with me wearing my pair of Gunners, visit piratechristianradio.com forward slash Gunners. That's G-U-N-N-A-R-S. Again, piratechristianradio.com forward slash Gunners, and thank you for your support. Okay, we're back. Hour number two of Fighting for the Faith sermon review time. We'll be going down under to C3. Let's cue up the music here. The good, the bad, and, well, the ugly. We review it all here at Fighting for the Faith. We are an equal opportunity sermon reviewing service. Today's sermon comes to us via C3 Church from Oxford Falls in Australia. John Bevere, by the way, presiding. This is the Easter sermon that was preached there. And I think the name of the sermon is The Life You Were Meant to Live. Yeah, that's the name of the book also that John Bevere happens to have written. 
So it's imagine yourself Easter Sunday there at C3 and Phil Pringle. I'm gonna, in fact, I'm gonna fit. I'm gonna play Phil Pringle introducing John Bevere, and then let John Bevere take the stage so you kind of hear what's going on. Now I can't promise I'm gonna make it through this whole thing. <laughs> I'm just saying because really early on things go really badly. <laughs> That's about all I'm gonna say. You know, maybe next year. Maybe you know we can figure out where John Bevere is preaching on Easter Sunday and quickly try to make sure they get into the mix for the 2013 edition of the worst Easter sermon preached. So, ay ay ay. So without any further ado, let me uh, let me kill the music here. Yeah, yeah. I pressed the button. There was a little bit of a latency. Here is uh, Phil Pringle of C3 uh, introducing John Bevere. For his Easter Sunday sermonage, just listen. Here we go. Don't miss it. It's going to be absolutely, utterly amazing. Hey, look, um, we've had the incredible joy, privilege, and honor of uh, of hearing John Bevere, one of the greatest communicators in the world today, one of the finest servants of God I'm a friend of, and uh, Chris and I have really enjoyed fellowshipping with this brother for many years. And so I want you all to stand and welcome John Bevere as he comes tonight. Share with us the Word of God. Thanks, Hey, man. Love you. Hey, good evening, C3. Wow, what a day we're having it. Let me tell you, only at C3 will I see something so amazingly unique as a helicopter dropping Easter eggs from the sky. That has put an imprint on me forever. I'm telling you, it was so amazing today. But, you know, it takes a man like Phil Pringle to come up with an idea like, you're amazing. He didn't come up with that. He stole it from Stephen Furtick. You know what? You know, can I say something? I get more out of your offering videos than I do out of many guys' full 40-minute messages. You guys are so blessed to have Phil and Chris Pringle as your leaders. How many of you know that? Yeah? Amen? Wow. All I could say is God really loves Lisa and me to give us friends like you. Thank you so much for being our friends. And Lisa sends her love. And girls, let me tell you, she's so fired up about coming and being with you. Let me show you a picture of my family really quick. Here they are, my gorgeous family. I think they're coming. I hope they're coming. Yep, there they are. There's my gorgeous family. You can see my smoking hot wife of 30 years of marriage. Lisa, I'm so in love with her. Anyway, and there's our four boys and our two G-babies and my daughter-in-law. And you say, what's a G-baby? I'm way too young to be grandpa, so it's G-daddy and G for short, for those of you who don't know, all right? So anyway, I love them so much. You know, the more I come to love my family, the more I realize how much God really loves us. Amen? We're his family. Can you say amen to that? Well, listen, I want to get in the Word tonight. I want to continue. How many of you were here during either last night or this morning? Let me see your hands. Put them up. How many of you weren't here? Oh, I'm going to have to do a little review. Just a little bit of review because I'm kind of continuing. I left you on a cliff this morning. I see a lot of you came back out, right? So I want to finish it. I want to try to finish it tonight. So I want to get right into the Word. Is that okay? And listen, let me tell you, don't miss Tuesday night. I'm so excited about it. I just wish it was here tonight. It's going to be good. Amen? All right, so let's pray, all right? Father, in the name of Jesus, thank you. Thank you, thank you, thank you for sending Jesus. Jesus, you died for us. You gave your life for us completely and totally so that we might become sons and daughters of God. Lord, for this we are forever and ever grateful. So I'm asking you, Holy Spirit of God, tonight, I'm asking you to literally come into the sanctuary and that you would speak to us the word of life. 
that would bring change in our lives forever and ever. I'm asking that you would bring us to another level of glory tonight as you reveal Jesus to us. May we see him clearly. May we know him and may we run with him in this life. And so I'm asking this in the mighty name of Jesus and everybody that agrees shouts. Come on, give him praise in the name of Jesus. Amen. Praise Him. Amen. Amen. You can be seated. Well, this morning I was talking to you uh, from the book that I wrote called Extraordinary, The Life You Are Meant to Live. How many of you know God's called you to live an extraordinary life? God's called you to live an extraordinary life. I had no idea. Ephesians chapter 3, 9, and 10, Paul made the statement that the plan of God for your life is an extraordinary plan. Well, let's check that out. I mean, if I just go to Ephesians chapter 3, I should be able to see all about that extraordinary life that God wants me to, to uh, live, right? But here's the deal. I'm going to read it in context um, so that uh, we, we, we make sure that we understand what's going on. Because those, by the way, are the three primary rules for sound biblical interpretation. Context context and context. So, in fact, what's interesting is when I go to Ephesians chapter 3, verse 9, it begins with the word and. And. Hmm. Yeah, it's there in the Greek too, chi. Um, that means he's quoting a verse after a conjunction. He's, he's purposely quoting the Bible omitting the first part of a sentence. See, that's not how somebody who's a sound biblical exegete behaves, by the way. So I'll start at verse 1, uh, Ephesians chapter 3, verse 1. For this reason, I, Paul, a prisoner of for Christ Jesus, on behalf of you Gentiles, assuming that you have heard of the stewardship of God's grace that was given to me for you, how the mystery was made known to me by revelation as I have written briefly, when you read this, you can perceive my insight into the mystery of Christ, which was not made known to the sons of men in other generations, as it has now been revealed to his holy apostles and prophets by the Spirit. For this mystery is that the Gentiles are fellow heirs, members of the same body, and partakers of the promise in Jesus Christ through the gospel. Of this gospel, I was made a minister according to the gift of God's grace, which was given to me by the working of his power. To teach me, though I am the very least of all the saints, this grace was given to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ and to bring to light for everyone what is the plan of the mystery hidden for ages in God, who has, created, uh, who has created all things, so that through the church the manifold wisdom of God might be made known to the rulers and authorities in heavenly places. This was according to the eternal purpose that he has realized in Christ Jesus our Lord, in whom we have boldness to access with confidence through our faith in him. So I ask you not to lose heart over what I am suffering for you, which is your glory. Well, there, I just read it in context from a good translation. I didn't see anything there about God intends for me to have an extraordinary life. In fact, what I read there is Paul's talking about, well, preaching the gospel, being set apart for the work of the gospel, um, revealing the mystery of the gospel. It's all right there in Ephesians chapter 3. So what is he talking about? The Bible doesn't say that in Ephesians chapter 3, verses 9 and 10, that 
God has an extraordinary life that he intends for me to live. It doesn't say any of that at all. And what does the word extraordinary mean? That's the exact word that's used in the Message Bible. The word extraordinary means to... (laughs) The exact word that's used in the Message Bible. Maybe that's the problem. Hang on a second here. I'm going to have to... I do not own a copy of the uh, of the Message Bible. Hang on, so so I've got to go online to find this. I know where to get to it if I need to. Um, <laughs> hang on a second here. So I'm waiting for a website to queue up Ephesians chapter three, and I want to. Oh, man, I hate to even go here. All right, so I want to see Ephesians chapter three in the Message. So he's apparently, you know exegeting the message because that's what he said right and you know and this word in the message paraphrase means exactly that extraordinary right all right so ephesians chapter 3 i'll read 8 through 10 from the message and so here i am preaching and writing about these uh, about things that are way over my head the inexhaustible riches and generosity of christ my task is to bring out in the open the, the and make plain what god who created all this was in the first place has been doing in secret behind the scenes uh, all along through followers of Jesus like yourselves gathered in churches. This extraordinary plan of God is becoming known and talked about even among the angels. Oh, man, this is a first here at Fighting for the Faith. (laughs) We actually have somebody who's twisted the message. Oh, man, just when you think it can't get any crazier. All right, so, I mean, is it po- is it possible that somebody can twist the message paraphrase? John Bevere has just done it. <laughs> and I hear all along I didn't think it could be done. I thought the whole point of the message paraphrase was for people to be able to preach heresy by and create the impression that they're teaching the truth. So now we've got a twisting of a twisting. Go beyond what is usual. It means to exceed the common measure. Sometimes we understand a word better by what looking at what it's not. The antonyms of extraordinary are common, ordinary, or normal. So I want you to think with me. The opposite of living an extraordinary life is to live a normal life. Now, we talked about... So that would be bad. Yeah, so if you're living a normal life, you're apparently outside of God's will. The first question we asked this morning was, and last night was how do we live the extraordinary life? If God has called us to go beyond the norm. See, I believe Christians should be the most innovative, the most creative, the wisest, the most brilliant. Uh, Wait a second. He said, I believe. You got any Bible verses that actually say that in context from a good translation? That the job of Christians is to be the most innovative, the most whatever. He just said, I believe. Yeah, no pastor on the planet is called to preach what he believes. He's called to preach what God has revealed in his word. Big difference, by the way. The most inspiring people on the planet. Why? Because God lives on the inside of us. I mean, if you look at Amy Sibylla McPherson, she built Angelus Temple in the days of the Depression and sustained it. When people, by the way, this is another false application of the mystical union, because uh, so, we got God living inside of us. We got to be the most creative people ever. The Bible doesn't teach this. This is a false understanding of the mystical union. We're working three jobs just to put bread on the table. She built a five thousand seat auditorium. 
And do you know Hollywood producers would sneak out to her Sunday night services? Charlie Chaplin was one of them. And the reason they would come to her illustrated Sunday night services is to get ideas from the props she built to use them in Hollywood. She was influencing the world. Are you with me? I look at some of the Christian programs today. I just went into my hotel room. I think it was about two years ago. And I was done with the service and I turned on Christian TV. And uh, I don't watch a lot of Christian TV. I'll be really honest with you. But I turned it on. And I remember there was this guy singing Amazing Grace in front of 2,000 people. And when he was done with the song, the spotlights went to a table of three judges. And the judges started saying, well, your inflection could have been a little better. And I remember collapsing on my hotel room floor, Pastor Phil. And I said, my God, you created the universe, the supernovas, the nebulas. You created the sea creatures, the Rocky Mountains. And you live on the inside of us. And we're going to Hollywood. We're going to American Idol for our inspiration. There's something wrong with that. That's, we're, that's us being the tail, not the head. God, What on? Or by the way, this is an Easter sermon. I wonder what he would do with this verse. First um, Thessalonians chapter 4, I'll start at verse 9. By the way, it's verse 11, but I want to read it in context. Now concerning brotherly, brotherly love, we have no need for anyone to write to you, for you yourselves have been taught by God to love one another. For that indeed is what you are doing to all the brothers throughout Macedonia. But we urge you, brothers, to do this more and more, and to aspire to live quietly. Mind your own affairs to work with your hands as we instructed you so that you may walk properly before outsiders and be dependent on no one. Aspire to live quietly. Doesn't say anything here about, well, because you've got God living on the inside of you, you need to, you know, wag the tail. I mean, the the dog. Or, well, you, you understand what I'm saying. We continue. God said we're the head. Society should be looking to believers for the innovation and the creation. If you look at the nations that have been the most creative and innovative, it's been Christian nations. Are you with me? And so how do we live this extraordinary life? See, look, I, I got to stay with it. If you're a businessman, your business should be booming. You should be coming up with the most creative, innovative techniques to market you whatever it is you're doing. If you're a teacher, you should be coming up with the most inspired ways of communicating wisdom and knowledge to your students. If you're in the police force, you should be solving the mysteries before anybody else. Why? Because we're extraordinary. We're called to be the light of the world. Good night. This is just complete, made-up pablum, masquerading as Christian teaching. This is not what the Bible teaches. Preach myself happy already. Are you here? So the question we asked is, how do we do it? How do we live the extraordinary good life? And the answer is the grace of God. This is where the big disconnect occurs. Most Christians, when they hear the word grace, they think forgiveness of sins, which it is. They think of salvation, which it forgiveness of sins, which it is. They think of salvation, which it definitely is. They think of a free gift, which it is. They think the love of God, which it is. But they don't think of what its primary meaning is. The grace of God, according to the New Testament, is his power. That is the resurrection power of Jesus that is in us. And so when God speaks grace, you can many times when reading your Bible substitute the word empowerment. He's this is the empowerment heresy. It's really taking shape now, but this is not correct. 
said to the apostle Paul, my grace is all you need, Paul, for my power works best in your human weakness. So God defined his grace as his power. Peter defines the grace of God as his divine power. Yet very few Christians understand this. Let me give you the definition of the grace of God in the original Greek. If you look at the word grace, it means this. It means gift, favor, benefit, gracious, and liberality. But then it is continued to be defined as this, the divine influence upon the heart with its reflection in the life. So you can see there is an outward reflection of what's done in the heart. My definition of the grace of God is God's empowering presence in our life that gives us the ability to go beyond our natural ability. I love that. I've seen it operate in my life. I shared this morning. Well, when do you get the ability to have your own definition of grace? There isn't a Greek lexicon on the planet that would have your definition in there. Where did you get the authority to add your own definition to a dead language to the word grace? Huh? My very worst subject in high school was English and creative writing and foreign language. So when God asked me to write a book in 1991, I said, you obviously have so many children on the planet, you're getting us mixed up now with one another. Lord, talk to my high school English teachers. They know I can't write. You don't want me writing. Now notice, direct revelation here, he's claiming that God specifically told him to write a book, which, by the way, means that if you contradict his book, you're contradicting God. We don't need his book. We've got the Bible. And by the way, the, the Greek word charis does not mean that that last thing that he tacked onto it. He's playing fast and loose and trying to create the impression that his definition's okay, but that's his definition, not the definition of the word. You've got better writers, but yet, 10 months later, thank God for his mercy, he sends two women to me with two, two from two different states within two weeks, and they both said, John, if you don't write what God's given you to write, he's going to give the message to somebody else, and you'll be judged for it. I remember when the second woman said it, I wrote a contract with God. And I said, God, I can't write, so I need your grace. And I signed it. Now the books are in the millions. They're in 62 languages all over the world. They're bestsellers in many countries. God was going to judge him for not writing this. Huh. And so he had to write a contract with God. This isn't biblical at all. And so the grace of God gives us the ability to go beyond our natural ability. How many of you know that God wrote your biography before you were born. How many of you know that? Let me see your hands. I, I'm curious. Do you know some people don't know that that are Christians? It amazes me. Yeah, God wrote your biography. I mean, look what David says in Psalm 139. David says in Psalm 139, you saw me before I was born. Now look at this. Every day of my life was recorded in your book. Everybody say book. How many of you know you got a book written about your life? I mean, President. Wow, it's all about you. Isn't that great? Obama is not the only one with a book written about his life. Ronald Reagan is not the only one that has a book written about his life. You have a book written about your entire life, and God is the author of it. And look what he says. Every moment, every moment of your life was laid out in that book before a single day of your life began. Oh, my goodness. Goodness. God wrote every moment of your life before you were born. See, did you ever wonder when the Bible talks about the believer's judgment? Now, I'm not talking about the unbeliever's judgment, the believer's judgment. Do you remember the Bible says the books are going to be open? 
Remember that in the book of Daniel? I think we've got it. I think I've actually got the scripture. The books are going to be open. Hey, what books are going to be open at the judgment? The book he wrote about your life. God's going to look at your story and he's going to say, now, let's see what I wrote about your life and let's compare it to how you lived. Because we won't be judged for what we did. We'll be judged rather according to what we are called to do. What are you talking about? Seriously. You read a passage from the Psalms where David says that all of his life was written in the, you know, written by God. You say it's a biography. And now we find out that, well, it's not just any old biography. It's a biography of what you should have done. And then we're going to look at your life and see what you really did. The Bible doesn't say this, sir. You are playing fast and loose with the word of God. By the way, God will judge you for this unless you repent and are forgiven. God's going to look at your story and he's going to say, now, let's see what I wrote about your life and let's compare it to how you lived. Because we won't be judged for what we did. We'll be judged rather according to what we are called to do. Did some of you, did you get that? You won't be judged as a believer. You won't be judged according to what you did. You'll be judged rather according to what you were called to do. I'm talking about in what we, in, in our life callings. See, let, let me make this really clear. This, this would have happened at the judgment seat. Jesus would have said, John Bevere, son, I want you to step forward, please. It is time to give an account of your life. And I would have stepped forward and Jesus would have looked at me and said, son, where are the millions of people that I called you to impact through your writings? I would have said, me, me, Jesus, I, 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 I don't. I don't mean to embarrass you, but you have the wrong person. I mean, my ninth grade English teacher's way over there, and uh, my, my, my 11th grade English teacher's back there. Just talk to them. I couldn't write. And he would have said, where are the books that I called you to write to impact millions of people? I would have been judged according to what I was called to do. Man. You don't believe in the sufficiency of Scripture? Well, think about this. Now you got to live in terror because apparently you believe that Jesus is going to judge you for not listening to the whispers that you were supposedly receiving from him. That's what John Bevere is laying out here. Judgment based upon you not obeying an internal prompting, God speaking something to you apparently. This isn't biblical Christianity because remember the Bible teaches the Word of God can make the man of God complete for every good work. Here, he's, well, he needs an internal prompting, and for which if he doesn't obey, he's going to be judged. This is all law. This is no gospel. This isn't Christianity. This is just self-delusion. Are you seeing this now? Can I tell you about your life calling? Can I tell you about the book, your biography that God wrote about your life? Would you like to know about it? It is impossible for you to fulfill what God wrote about your life in that book before you were born in your own ability. If it was possible for you to fulfill what he wrote about your life in your own ability, then he'd have to share the glory with you. And God said, I am not sharing my glory with anybody. So God on purpose made your life calling, what he wrote about your book, your biography, beyond your ability, so you'd have to depend on grace to fulfill it. 
This is absurd. The Bible doesn't say any of this. See, I don't know if you realize this, but what I'm, what I'm sharing with you, this is why Jesus had to hang around for three and a half years. I mean, he's literally trying to drive this into these disciples before he leaves. That, that grace... Really, if this is what he was trying to drive into the disciples, why didn't they teach this? ...is his empowerment. Are you with me? Yeah. I, mean, I mean, I remember, how, how many of you know those guys really were, they were good guys. And I remember one time the burden was theirs. It, it really wasn't even Jesus they originated the burden. I mean, they were out in the middle of the desert. Jesus had taught these people for three days. These crowds had had nothing to eat or nothing to drink. And I can almost think probably Thomas gathered Peter, James, John, Philip, said, guys, come here. We've been out here for three days. These people have nothing to eat. The nearest villages are kilometers away. If he doesn't release these guys, they're going to faint. They're going to die. Peter goes, good point. Good point, Thomas. Thomas goes, Peter, would you please talk to him? You're the one that's most outspoken. We'll support you. Peter says, come on, guys. So the five of them walk up to Jesus. I can just see this. They walk up to Jesus. They go, hey, Jesus. Hey, Peter, James, John, Philip, Thomas. How you doing, guys? Oh, good, good, good. Hey, Jesus, the meetings are great. The teachings, best we've heard from you. Oh, great. Thanks, guys. But Jesus, have you considered this? We're in the middle of the desert. These people have nothing to eat. We've been here for three days. If you don't let them go, if you don't release them, they're going to they're gonna die. They're going to suffer. They're going to faint on the way to the villages. Jesus went, good point. Great point. Okay, you give them something to eat. When he said that to them, do you know what immediately went through their minds? Where are we going to get enough money to buy bread for these people in the middle of the wilderness? So immediately their mind reverts back to their own ability. Jesus goes, you still don't get it yet, do you guys? Tell them to sit down and I'll do it. What he did, he fully intended them to do. But really, what, what verse do you have that says that what he did, he intended for them to? to do you're reading a different bible sir because they didn't understand grace's empowerment they didn't do it are you seeing this see let me, oh i'm seeing all right this is heresy like i couldn't believe let me tell you something how many of you are doing what god has called you to do let me see your hands you really believe you're doing what god has called you to do in life whether it's the business world the educational field whatever it is put up your hands high I want yeah i'm raising my hand all of you have your hands up yeah right? my job is exposing heretics i'm doing exactly what god has called me to do and i'm doing it right now okay do you know jesus told his disciples one time he said hey guys i want you to get in the boat and i want you to go to the other side i need some daddy time right now i need to pray so these guys get in the boat at six o'clock at night and they start heading across the sea, right? So Jesus goes up and prays for nine hours. So at three o'clock in the morning, Jesus decides, okay, time to go across. So he starts walking on the water. Now, here's what's interesting. They started out at six o'clock at night, and for nine hours, they were rowing against a windstorm. Have you ever tried rowing a boat against a heavy wind and waves that are beating against you? It's really frustrating. You row two feet, you go back a foot. Two feet, you go back a foot, right? So this is what happens. 
At three o'clock in the morning, Jesus sees them straining at rowing. Look at this. Read this scripture. This is Mark 6. Now, and when the evening came, the boat was in the middle of the sea, and he was alone on the land, and he saw them straining at rowing. Now, I've got a question. Did he tell them to go to the other side? I, I need participation. Yes or no? Yeah, he said, get in the boat, go to the other side. So they're doing exactly what he told them, yet they are straining at it. Are you seeing this? But now watch what happens. Keep, put the rest of the verse up. Now about the fourth watch of the night, that's three o'clock in the morning. He came to them walking on the sea and would have passed them by. Now, another translation says it even better. I wish I had it up there. It said he intended to pass them by. But you know what happened? They got smart. And they screamed out for him. They cried out for him. And so he gets in the boat. And when he does, the wind ceases and they're the other side. So here's what's going on. Here we are daily doing what God has called us to do. It may be in the business world. It may be in the educational field. It may be in ministry. And we're straining because of opposing forces. And each day, I can almost see Jesus walking by. And he intends to pass by. Because he will never interrupt. Notice he's allegorized the story now. Interrupt your day unless you ask him. He won't violate your will. So he comes walking by and intends. This interpretation is not found in any passage of scripture. And this is not what the church fathers taught either. The past by, but now some of us are going to be smart and we're going to cry out Jesus. And you know what's going to happen? Grace is going to get in our boat. Did you go to the Stephen Furtick School of Narcissus? I'm, I'm just curious. Did you learn this technique from Furtick? So the second question we asked this morning was, how do we access this empowering grace for our everyday life. Isn't that the question I left you on? Come on, are you, are, are you with me? How do we access this grace practically for our everyday life? Would you like to know? Well, the answer is found in Romans chapter 5. In Romans chapter 5, verses 1 and 2, Paul makes this statement. He said, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom also we have access. Everybody shout access. Shout it again. Oh, shout it again. We have access by faith into this grace in which we stand. Now, notice something here. Um, he's changed the definition of grace to empowerment. And he's now trying to make the claim that the Apostle Paul here is teaching this very lesson while that John Bevere is teaching. But if we were to just go to Romans and spend a little bit of time looking at the context. Now, keep in mind, if you're going to be reading Romans chapter 5, verses 1 and 2, that in order to get the context, you're going to have to go into chapter 4. And so we're going to do that. We're going to go into Romans chapter 4 to see if Paul, if what Paul here is talking about is empowerment, the, the ability to live that life 
that you could not otherwise live if it were not for the empowering power of the grace of God. Okay? Well, let's take a look. Romans chapter 4, I'll start at verse 13. For the promise to Abraham and his offspring that he would be the heir of the world did not come through the law, but through the righteousness of faith. Hmm. When you go and you read Romans 3 and 4 in its total context, you find out that this is an argument that Paul is talking about regarding whether or not we are saved by grace or we are saved by obedience and keeping of the law. That's the dichotomy that's set up. And so he's using Abraham then as proof that we are not saved by law-keeping, but we are saved by the righteousness of faith. That means that God's righteousness, Christ's righteousness, imputed to us okay, by faith. For if, the, if it is the adherents of the law who are to be heirs, faith is null and the promise is void. For the law brings wrath, but where there is no law, there is no transgression. That is why it depends on faith, in order that the promise may rest on grace and be guaranteed to all his offspring, not only to the adherent of the law, but also to the one who shares the faith of Abraham, who is the father of us all. As it is written, I have made you the father of many nations in the presence of, uh, in the, presence of the God in whom he believed, who gives life to the dead and calls into existence the things that do not exist." In hope, he, Abraham, believed against hope that he should become the father of many nations. As he had been told, so shall your offspring be. He did not weaken in faith when he considered his own body, which was as good as dead since he was about a hundred years old, or when he considered the barrenness of Sarah's womb. No, no unbelief made him waver concerning the promise of God, but he grew strong in his faith as he gave glory to God, fully convinced that God was able to do what he had promised. That is why his faith was counted to him as righteousness. But as but the words it was counted were uh, to him were not written for his sake alone, but for ours also. It will be counted to us who believe in him who raised from the dead Jesus our Lord, who was delivered up for our trespasses and raised for our justification. Therefore, see now we're at Romans five one. The therefore has in front of it all of the stuff about being saved by grace and not by works of the law and being deliver who and believing and trusting in Christ who was delivered up for our trespasses that's our sins and raised for our justification therefore since we have been justified or declared righteous by faith we now have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ I think when John Bevere quoted this, he just said, we have peace with God, but he missed the whole therefore. He's twisting the Bible out of context. Therefore, since we have been declared righteous or justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have also obtained access by faith into this grace. This grace that was talking about is our justification by grace through faith. Through him we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand and which we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. Not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance, endurance produces character, character produces hope. Hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. For while we were still weak, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly." For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die. But God shows his love for us in that while we were sinners, 
Christ died for us. Since therefore we have now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. Nothing there about the empowerment to do the impossible and the grace that's being spoken of in Romans chapter 5 verses 1 and 2 is the grace of the forgiveness of sins, our being declared righteous or justified in God's sight on account of what Christ has accomplished. That's what's being referred to here. He's misquoting this verse on purpose to make it sound like Paul teaches what John Bevere is teaching here, but John, but Paul didn't teach this. We continue. Now, I want you to look at the words in blue. We have access by faith into this grace in which we stand. Now, the word there, access, literally in the Greek means access. Okay? I'm so glad to report that. Now, think about this. You want to get on your friend's computer, but you can't. Why? Because you don't know the passcode, so access is denied. You're on the cricket team, and the janitor of the school has got all the cricket equipment, the wickets, the gloves, the balls, all locked up in the, in the janitor's closet, right? Right? You've got a problem. You can't get to the equipment. What do you do? You find the janitor who has the key, and the key gives you access, so now you have all the wicked equipment, right? Or or let's look at it like this. Do you guys have natural wells around here, you know, water water wells on your properties? You have a natural water well, right? And that's how that water well is what brings you water for your family, right? But a problem occurs because your well goes dry. You have a big problem. Your family has now no access to water. But there's good news. The city has a huge water tower right down the street. And one of the main pipes runs right by your property. What do you do? You go to the city, you get a permit, you go to the hardware store, you get some PVC piping, and you hook up your house to, with that piping, your plumbing of your house, to that main that comes from that water well. Now you have access to millions and millions of liters of water. Well, simply put, faith is the pipeline of grace. Are you with me? Now, technically, there's nothing wrong with this illustration. The problem is he's redefined grace. Faith here is supposed to get us to grace, which is the unmerited favor of God for the forgiveness of our sins on account of Christ. But he's changed grace into resurrection power to do the impossible in your life. So even though the metaphor he's using at the moment technically is okay, because he's redefined the word grace and applied his own definition, one that is not found in any Koine Greek lexicon, he's not teaching the truth. Are you getting this? Are you getting the visual? All right? So here's the deal. If you read those words in blue... In the light of that, it would read like this. We have access by the pipeline of faith into all the water of grace we need. Do you see that? Come on, God. Yeah, they're popping up. Look at that. I put it down for you. If we substitute what's in blue up there with, with the illustration I gave you, we have access by the pipeline of faith into all the water of grace we need. So to put it simply, whether you have access to the grace of God empowering you in your life to go to the extraordinary or not all depends upon whether or not you got the pipeline of faith, whether you believe or not. I said, whether you believe or not. Are you seeing this? I said, are you seeing this? Now let me go back to the scripture I showed you last night and this morning. 
And that is in 2 Peter. Look at this, 2 Peter chapter 1. It says, His divine power, which we established to be grace, has given to us all things that pertained to an extraordinary life. So those first two lines, you know what those first two lines basically tell us? Those first two lines tell us that everything we need to live an extraordinary life is all contained within God's grace. But then if you keep reading, it says, by which has been given to us exceeding great and precious promises, that's God's word, right? That through these, you might be partakers of the divine nature. So the second part of that verse, he's basically saying this, all grace is locked up in his word. Are you seeing this? Everything you need to live an extraordinary life is all locked up within his word. No, that is not what it says from a good translation. But yet, excuse me, everything you need to live an extraordinary life is all contained within grace. But all grace is locked up within his word. That's what he's saying there. So you know what that means? We can call the New Testament, we can call the New Testament the word of his grace. Now, I want you to think with me. Paul the Apostle is with the Ephesian elders. He knows that he's never going to see them again this side of heaven. He knows it. He tells them, you're not going to see my face again until we see each other in glory. These are his leaders. He's birthed this church. Think about it. How would you leave the guys that you have labored for years to build their lives? What would you leave them with? What would be the final statement you leave them with? We have a glimpse into what Paul left them. Here's the final statement he makes to these leaders. Look what he says in Acts 20, 32. He says, and so now, brethren, I commend you to God. Now, let me tell you, I love the passion that we have for God in our churches. I mean, I look at our worship songs, God, we love you, God, we love you, God, we love you. But Paul doesn't say, I commend you to God, period. He says, I commend you to God and to something else. And to the word of his Come on, shout it. The word of his grace, which is able, the word of his grace is able to build you up and give you your inheritance that God wrote in your book before you were born. That's eisegesis. He is sticking stuff into that text that is not in there. This guy is a supreme heretic and Bible twister. Wow. Do you sell snake oil too and call it uh, holy oil? I'm curious. Are you seeing this? I said, are you seeing this? So this is why the writer of Hebrews, now stay with me on this, says that Jesus is upholding everything by the word of his power. In Hebrews chapter 1, verse 3, you remember that? All right? Now, let me say this. If it says he's upholding everything by the word of his power, that really means he's upholding everything by the word of his grace. Right? Now, do you notice that it says word of his power? I remember, I used to read this verse of scripture, and I think, wow, they talk funny in the New King James Version. I would have said Jesus is upholding everything by the power of his word. Wouldn't you say it that way? Am I the only one who thinks that way? But then all of a sudden, I thought, now, wait a minute, I'm messing with this. So I wrote to my friend in Athens, Greece, and I said to my friend who has studied ancient Greek, I said, I need to know something. Does Hebrews chapter 1, verse 3, in the original language, does it read the word of his power... Or does it read the power of his word? And he wrote me back and he said, John, under no, no uncertain terms, does it mean anything but 
that he upholds everything by the word of his power. I hit the ceiling when I saw the email. Because you know why? If it reads he holds up everything by the power of his word, that means his word is powerful. But if he upholds everything by the word of his power, that means all of his power is locked up in his word. No, it really doesn't mean that. You're pouring your own meaning into this. The power of his word, that means his word is powerful. But if he upholds everything by the word of his power, that means all of his power is locked up in his word. No, it doesn't mean that. Good night. You don't even know what you're talking about. It's clear you haven't ever taken Greek. The power of his word, that means his word is powerful. But if he upholds everything by the word of his power, that means all of his power is locked up in his word. Did you ever, did you ever wonder why line. in Psalm 138, the Bible says that God, you have magnified your word even above your name? Why? He looks out into a dark universe, a dark expanse, excuse me. And he goes, light be, and bam, there's a universe. All of his powers locked up within his word. That's why it's called the word of his grace, the word of his power. Are you seeing this? No, I'm not, because I see the tricks that you are engaging in. This is just you're ripping passages out of context and stringing them all together. You've invented your own definitions, and this is all based upon the delusions of your own mind and not any sound exegesis. This is a crime that you're committing uh, that Easter Sunday there at uh, C3. Bam, there's a universe. All of his powers locked up within his word. That's why it's called the word of his grace, the word of his power. Are you seeing this? This is why the writer of Hebrews, now listen to what he says. The writer of Hebrews says this. He says, for indeed the gospel was preached to us as well as unto them, but the word which they heard did not profit them. Not being mixed with faith in those who heard it. Now listen, listen, listen. Figuratively speaking, first of all, who's he talking about? He's talking about Israel. Figuratively speaking, all of heaven's blessings were running right in front of their tents and houses. Every bit of heaven's blessings. But they didn't profit because they didn't hook up their pipe. They simply didn't believe. This is why you can have people sitting in church. One person's life's changed forever and ever. And the other person says, hmm, that, person, that speaker was interesting. The one guy hooked up the pipe. He got the transformation that came. He got the empowering grace. The other guy got his head educated. Are you seeing the difference? I said, are you seeing the difference? So this is why I've been so concerned for the church. I'll be really honest with you. When I heard that only 2% of the Americans in that nationwide survey, 2% said the grace was God's empowerment. 
it ruined my day. I was actually on the golf course and I was with a, like this president of four companies playing golf with him. And I said, it, ru- it completely ruined my golf game. I just looked at him. I said, I'm sorry. I'm, I'm gone. Two percent, two percent. And he looked at me and he said, John, the first thing I think of when I hear the word grace is empowerment. And I said, yeah, you're like president of four companies. I can understand that. Are you with me? So this is why I was so passionate about writing this message. Because I want to bring that 2% up to 100%. I want when you see the grace of God in the New Testament, you immediately substitute in empowerment. And do it and the whole New Testament is going to open up in a new way. Why is this? Because Paul says, how can people have faith? Look at this, Romans chapter 10, 14. How can people have faith if they've never heard? And how can they hear unless somebody tells them? See, if all we tell people that grace is just forgiveness of sins, grace is just a free gift, grace is only a ticket into heaven, then guess what? Those people are going to leave a very defeated, non-fruitful life. And heaven is not going to invade their world of influence. Are you with me? Um, John, here's the problem, and it's this. That words mean what they mean in context. If you work, look up the Greek word charis in a just standard Greek lexicon, you're going to find that it has a multiple multitude of meanings. And it's going to depend upon the context in which it's used as to what it means. You're trying to basically smuggle in your empowerment heresy, is what this is, definition that you concocted yourself and you want to plug it in so that everybody, when they hear the word grace, that's the only thing they hear is empowerment. But grace is to be understood in the context that it is given in the biblical text, not according to your empowerment heresy. Man, this is awful. Are you with me? See, look at it just in the aspect of salvation. If you look at salvation, here's the scripture that everybody knows in this church. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes, everybody shout believes, in him should not perish but have everlasting life. So God gave Jesus for the entire world. Jesus paid the price for the entire world to be saved. Do you know that that's already been paid? Right? It's done. Every human being, the price has been paid for every human being that walks on the face of the earth. God gave Jesus for the world. Not just for a select few. He gave them for the whole world. I mean, there are some people that actually think that there's only a select few that have been pre-chosen by God that can get saved. That is so ridiculous. Don't ever listen to that. My goodness, run out of the building if somebody ever says that. I mean, I wish those people would just read the scripture. Look at look at First Peter. Look at this, or Second Peter. God is patient because he wants everyone. Now, everyone in my country means everyone. He wants everyone to turn from sin and no one to be lost. You don't have to ask God. God, do you want that person saved? Yes, he wants them saved. There's your scripture right there. I mean, you ever heard of this tulip junk? It, it, those of you know who I'm talking about. Those of you who don't, don't ever listen to tulip. But if you've heard of Tulip... Oh, man, he's going after the Reformed here. Uh, it, listen, 
I am not a Calvinist. However, I have deep respect for their position. Now, the verse that he brought up is one that I would go to if I were to sit down with a Calvinist brother and say, listen, I don't think the Bible squares with the doctrine of limited atonement. I just don't see it. And here's one of the passages why. This guy here, the thing that's that's grating on all on me on this is that this guy has been mangling God's word from the beginning of this so-called Easter sermon to preach his empowerment heresy. So this is not what I would consider a biblical scholarly challenge to Tulip. I'm I think I'm what a two and a half point Calvinist anyway. I'm not a Calvinist, but you know, you get what I'm saying. But we continue. There's your scripture right there. I mean, you ever heard of this tulip junk? Those of you know what I'm talking about. Those of you don't, don't ever listen to tulip. But if you've heard of tulip, throw it down the toilet, please. It is ridiculous. I'm just a Catholic boy that gets saved and read the Bible. And then they come up and say, oh, you're Calvinist, or you believe in the tulip, or you're Armenian. And I'm like, last I checked, I'm a Christian. It's ridiculous. You understand what I'm saying? Now, look at this. God wants everybody to be saved, right? But Jesus tells us what's going to happen because he knows the end from the beginning, right? Look what Jesus says. Look at this. He says, the gate to hell is wide and the road that leads to it is easy. And there are many, everybody say many, who travel it. But the gate to life is narrow and the way that leads to it is hard. And there are few people that find it. Jesus says right there, the majority of mankind is going to end up in hell. Now, whoa, 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 whoa. Why? When such, a, what, when such a tremendous price was paid for all of humanity, why? Why is the majority of mankind going to end up in hell? Because Paul said the only way to be saved is through faith. Do you remember? For God so loved the world that whoever believes, you have to hook up the pipe. And once you believe, you have the saving grace. Are you seeing this? Everybody on earth, the price has been paid for them to be saved. But only those who believe are the ones who, what, access the saving grace. Are you seeing this? See, look at the whole scripture that I quoted to you earlier. Go ahead, punch the button, guys. Here's the whole scripture. How can anyone have faith in the Lord and ask him to save them if they've never heard? And how can they hear unless somebody tells them? There it is. The only way you can get saved is by hooking up the pipe of faith. Right? No, faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of Christ. Faith is a gift given, produced by the Holy Spirit, given by the Holy Spirit through the preaching of the gospel. Ah, I mean, ah, this is crazy. Right? Are you seeing this? This is why Paul comes along and Paul makes the statement. He said, my mission is that I, I am been sent in 1 Thessalonians 3.10 to mend and make good whatever may be imperfect and lacking in your faith. You know what Paul is basically saying? I'm a pipe fixer. I'm going around to all these churches and I'm Give mending me up a and I'm break. whatever is lacking in your faith. I'm mending your pipes. See, let, 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 me, just, let me just illustrate it this way. You're born as the son or daughter of of a great king. Okay? You're no, you are born dead in trespasses in sin. Jesus said to <laughs> the people who didn't believe in him, you are of your father the devil. So unless of course you want to make it clear that the great king that they are born uh related to is Satan, 
You're not rightly handling the word here again. Oh, man. How did this? Uh, uh. As the son or daughter of a great king, okay? You're heir to the throne. But the day you're born, some scoundrels kidnap you. And they whisk you off and they bring you deep into the kingdom. It's a vast kingdom. Way out into the country. And for the next 20 years, those scoundrels make you their slave. So for 20 years, you do nothing but cook their meals, clean their dishes, wash their clothes, farm their fields, milk their cows. You are literally their slave. And you sing Cinderella songs. Is a good king. And he has had search parties looking for you now for 20 years. And after 20 years, one of those search parties finds you. They arrest the scoundrels and throw them in the deepest dungeon in the land. And they bring you back to the castle and you are restored to your rightful place as heir of the throne. Can you imagine your first day in the castle? You are the heir of the throne. Move over, Jesus. You get up really early in the morning. You head out to the royal gardens. You pick some fruit, some veggies. Then you head over to the royal stalls. You start milking the cows. And then you come in with the milk and the veggies and the fruit. And the royal servants see you. And they go, what are you doing? What are you doing? Well, I'm just getting breakfast. No, 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 no. We do that for you. We do that for you. Oh, okay. You just sit down. We have the royal chef. He's the best chef in the whole land. We cook your meals. We get the guard stuff from the guard. Okay, okay. So after breakfast, you head to your room. You fill your bathtub up. You start washing your clothes. Then you make your bed. The royal housekeepers come in and go, what are you doing? What are you doing? Uh, I'm, I'm, I'm just cleaning up my room, washing my clothes. No, 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 no. We're your royal housekeepers. We do that for you. Now, how many of you know that first day activity is really easy to deal with? It's really easy to get you to stop going out and milking the cows, getting the eggs, and getting the vegetables, and washing your clothes. That's easy. But there's something much deeper that has to be dealt with. The way you reason, the way you think, the way you interact, the way you make decisions. You have had a slave's mentality for 20 years. This is something that has to be appealed away layer by layer by layer and replaced with an error's mentality. Taking Narcissus to a new level. Enslaved to the ordinary. When we got saved, it was really easy to take care of. We were born dead in trespasses and sins and enslaved to sin, death, and the devil. There's a big difference. To the ordinary. When we got saved, it was really easy to take care of that stuff on the first day, like smoking, cussing, drinking, jumping in bed with strange women. We got rid of that really quick. But there's something that's got to be dealt with on a much deeper level. That is the way we think. The way we reason, the way we interact, that's got to be peeled away layer by layer by layer and replaced and mended and replaced with an heir's mentality. Are you seeing this? And so this is what Paul says his job was. I'm sending and making firm, making good, mending up what's lacking in your faith. Because God didn't create you to be enslaved to the ordinary. He created you to be extraordinary. Are you with me? 
I said, are you with me? For this reason, Paul prays. He prays. I pray that you would be flooded. Look at this, Ephesians, that you would be flooded with light. Everybody say flooded with light. The entrance of his word gives light. So that you can know and understand what is, now look at this, what is the immeasurable? Think about it. You cannot measure it. And unlimited. It has no limits. And and surpassing greatness of his power. Now, if he stopped right there, we'd also go, oh yeah, Jesus' power is unlimited. Jesus' power is, you can't measure it. Jesus' power, oh my goodness, yes, it surpasses all greatness of any power. But that's not what he said. He said, of his power in and for us who believe, who've hooked up the pipe. Do you know what he's talking about there? He's talking about the free gift of God's grace. It is the immeasurable, unlimited, and surpasses all greatness of power. He says, I pray that you would be flooded with night so that you can know it. Are you seeing this? And then he goes on and he says, just a few verses later, he says, now unto him who is able. Everybody say able. Say it again. Say it louder. To do exceedingly abundantly above all you can ask or think. According to the power that periodically comes from the throne room. Is that what it says? Come on, somebody correct me if I'm preaching error up here. Now unto him who's able to do exceedingly abundantly. Yeah, I've been doing that the whole sermon. Because the whole sermon is nothing but error. We continue. Is that what it says? Come on, somebody correct me if I'm preaching error up here. Now unto him who's able to do exceedingly abundantly above all that we can ask or think according to the power we get if we go to a special healing evangelist meeting. Is that what he says? No. That we might know what is the exceedingly... That he, now to him who's able to do exceedingly abundantly above all we can ask or think according to the power that works in us. That's his grace. That's his grace. You know, in, in America, we used to live in Florida, and in Florida we had what's known as hurricanes. I don't think you call, guys call them hurricanes here. You call them typhoons? Cyclones. You call them cyclones. Okay, so we have category one, two, three, four, five. Hurricanes, I don't know if you do that. But if a Category 3 or higher hurricane hits a coastal city of Florida, what's the first thing we lose when that hurricane hits? We lose electricity, power. It's gone. What's the second thing we lose? Does anybody know? Come on, say it. You're saying it. You lose fresh water. It's gone. Okay? So, the first thing the government has to do in America... This is the way it happens in America, is the National Guard has to come in with huge tanker trucks filled with fresh living water. Because you can, you can live without power, you can't live without water. Okay? So that's the first thing that we do. So I want you to imagine a situation. Cyclone comes through, it's Category 4. All the water's gone. So the National Guard brings in these huge tanker trucks, and the general releases an announcement to the community, and he says, we are able to give you as much water as you can carry away. The first guy comes, and he's got a half a liter glass, and he leaves with a half a liter of fresh drinking water. The second guy comes, and he's got a four-liter jug. He leaves with four gallons of fresh water. The next guy comes, 
He's got a 20-liter paint bucket. He leaves with 20 liters of fresh water. The next guy backs his pickup. And on the back of his pickup is his bathtub. And he leaves with 500 liters of fresh water. Now, it just so happens that the guy with the pickup lives right next door to the guy with the half-liter gas glass. So when a guy with a half a liter glass of water sees him pulling in with 500 liters of fresh water, Furious does not describe him. He's irate. So he starts complaining. How come he gets 500 liters and I get a half liter? His complaints reach the neighbors. It reached the city officials and eventually gets to the general. The general calls him and says, hey, we told you we are able to give you as much water as you can carry away. Why did you come in here with a half a liter glass? Why didn't you back up in here with your pickup truck, with your bathtub? Now put that scripture back up. Now put up that, put, put up that scripture. Now unto him who is able to do exceedingly abundantly above all that we can ask or think. Now hold on. God invites us to come boldly. Not timidly with a half liter glass. Boldly into the throne of grace. To find grace. So you're going to get all of this theology out of a misreading of the benediction of this passage of scripture. Unbelievable. Yeah, this is the empowerment heresy. Fine specimen of it, too. I mean, it's such a new heresy. It's a... Tough to get clear specimens of it, but this is exactly what this is, the empowerment heresy. We continue. Boldly into the throne of grace to find grace in a time of need. Baby, it's a time of need. You have a world dying around you in your world of influence. It's a big time of need. Now, what is our container? What we can ask or think. So we're walking into the throne room. Come on, you're misreading this benediction and creating a false theology out of it. Unbelievable. So we're walking into the throne room with this container of Lord bless us for and no more. We're like the guy with the four liter jug or the half a liter glass. I just need what can take care of my needs. He's not thinking about the neighbors. He's not thinking about the people that need God's power. So we walk into the throne room, and our container is what we can ask and think. So God makes it very clear, I don't care how big you can think. I don't care how big you ask. I can do beyond that. So God is saying to us, what are you coming in here to this throne room with your leader glass? Why don't you back up your pickup truck? No, he's not. You're putting words into God's mouth that aren't even close to what his character is that he's revealed for us in his word. This is unbelievable. This is blasphemy. On Easter Sunday of all days, too. Wow. So God is saying to us, what are you coming in here to this throne room with your leader glass? 
Why don't you back up your pickup truck and leave with the mother load? Let me close it with this. Let me close it with this. I want you to imagine, you know, a couple of years ago, let me just, let me, let me, let me paint the picture. I was flying into Fresno, California. Now, Fresno, California is in this valley in California, right between two mountain ranges. And these are very high mountains. And so the water runoff is, is magnificent. And it's some of the most fertile soil in the entire United States between these two mountain ranges, okay? As I was flying into Fresno, I noticed there were water canals everywhere, and I noticed the most beautiful fields. There were apricot trees. There, were, there was barley. There was, there was wheat. There was, uh, there was strawberry fields. There was everything you can think of growing there. And there's all these canals. You want to know why those canals are there? Because the weather patterns in Fresno will not naturally sustain a field. You have to, you have to water it through the canals that comes from the water in the mountain. Are you following me? Are you with me? All right, so I want you to picture that kind of a situation. And so I want you to put up this thing, guys, and I want you to leave it up. Do not put me up. Leave this up. So we got a, we got a ca- canal, a river, right, that's flowing down, right? And next to the river, we got a wheat farmer, we got a soybean farmer, we got a barley farmer, we got a corn farmer, we got an oat farmer, and then there's other crops, right? Now, only the wheat farmer connects his field to the canal, so he connects his irrigation system to that canal. And he's the only one of all the farms that do it. Three, four months has gone by, and the governor of the land decides, I'm going to go out and check the farms. So he and the, he comes to the wheat farmer's farm, and the wheat farmer and the governor walk out to the field. And there is the field golden for harvest. The governor looks at the wheat farmer and says, thank you. Thank you for being faithful. Thank you for watering the fields because now because of your faithfulness, our people are going to have enough wheat next season. The governor thanks the wheat farmer and he goes next door to the soybean farmer. Soybean farmer and the governor walk out and there's the field that's parched. There's little brown shrub stubs of plants coming up that never grew to maturity. The whole field is completely dead and parched. The governor looks at the soybean farmer and says, what have you done? What have you done? Why didn't you connect your field to the canal? Now, do you understand how much our people are going to suffer next year? We will not have protein source next, next year. The whole community is going to suffer. What have you done? Uh, by the way, this parable does not appear in the scripture. Just want to let you all know that. The whole community is going to suffer. What have you done with what I entrusted you? The governor is devastated. The governor leaves and he goes next door to the barley farmer hoping to find relief. And the same thing happens. Parched ground. The governor says, what have you done? Same thing happens when he goes to the corn farmer. Same thing happens when he goes to the oat farmer. Now, I want to tell you about another river. Ezekiel prophesied about it. This river flows right from the throne and it brings healing to the nations. And this river is called the river of God's grace. And it flows right into the heart of a believer. Look at this now. Unfortunately, well, not, not, let me not say that yet. 100% of the Christians in the Western world have hooked up their field of forgiveness of sins to that water of God's grace. 100% of the Christians, they have believed God for salvation, for the forgiveness of sins. They've hooked up that field. However, 98% of the Christians 
have not hooked up their field of living holy. So they're trying to live a godly life in their own ability and they're miserably failing. They're bringing a reproach to the name of Jesus because they can't live a godly life. They can't walk worthy of the Lord, as the Bible says. 98% of the Christians have not hooked up their field of divine healing. So many of them are dying, many of them are sick, many of them are not able to do what God's called them to do because of their physical conditions. 98% of them have not hooked up to prosperity to meet the needs of mankind. Oh, wow. This is breathtakingly blasphemous. Wow. So we got divine healing and prosperity. You haven't hooked up. God's grace is going to give you divine healing and prosperity. All you got to do is hook up the field by faith. This isn't taught in the Bible. This is rank heresy. 98% of them have not hooked up to ruling in life because they don't even know it. How can they know unless they've been told? How can they know? How can they believe unless they've been told? Are you seeing this? What are we going to do when the governor comes and inspects our fields on the day of judgment when Jesus looks at us? He's going to look at us and say, I'm so, so glad you believe me for salvation because now you're my child and we'll be together forever. I'm so glad you hooked up your field of forgiveness of sins. Why didn't you? Hook up your field of living holy. Do you know people did not come into the kingdom because you brought a reproach to my name and you offended people? Why didn't you hook up? Why didn't you hook up to the field of divine health? And he'll go right down through the list. And you know what some people are going to say to Jesus? They're going to say, but Jesus, Jesus, wait a minute. As far as divine health goes, Jesus, my, my Aunt Mary, she was an intercessor. She was a great intercessor, but she died of a stroke. And my, and my Uncle Tom, he was a great pastor, and, and he, he was a man of God, and he died of cancer. Do you know that Aunt Mary and Uncle Tom's evidence will not be allowed in that courtroom, or in that throne room? It won't be allowed. So you're going to be judged if you die of cancer, and you're going to be judged by God if you weren't prosperous. Unbelievable. You know that Aunt Mary and Uncle Tom's evidence will not be allowed in that courtroom or in that throne room? It won't be allowed. Do you know that? See, here's the problem. Most people in the church, they be- listen, they, they read what they believe instead of believe what they read. In other words, through theirs and others' experiences, they make a filter. So when they read the scripture, that scripture is coming through a filter of Aunt Tom, Uncle Tom and Aunt Mary's experience. Are you with me? But you know that Jesus will not permit that in that in that throne room. How do I know that? Because Jesus already told us. Look what he says in John chapter 12. He said, if anyone hears my words and does not believe, I do not judge him. The word that I have spoken will judge him in that last day. The only thing that will be permitted in that throne room at the judgment seat is the word of God. Are you with me? So this is why... I'm on a mission. You know, Martin Luther, Martin Luther, he pounded on the All Saints Church door in Wittenberg, Germany in 1517, the 95 Theses. I'm on another mission, and I'm enlisting people to join me because I want to see the 2% go to 100% because I am firmly convinced, listen to me, firmly convinced that the greatest generation that has ever lived before, the most powerful 
most overcoming, most champion nation that's ever lived before is this generation. And we don't have anything more than what any other generation has had. Because if you have extra biblical revelation, baby, you're an heir. So that means we don't have anything more than the previous generation. What does that mean? God is just going to uncover the revelation of what he's talking about as far as the power of the grace that he gave us when we became believers. That's why Isaiah says, Arise, shine, your light has come. The glory of the Lord has risen upon you. For behold, darkness is going to cover the earth and gross darkness of people, but the light of God is going to rise in you and unbelievers are going to be drawn to your light. Listen, I tell you what, I'm believing with all my heart that you're going to hear, you're going to really meditate on what I've shared with you today. And I believe you're going to begin to distinguish yourself in your world of influence. You're going to begin to live the extraordinary life. And people are going to say to you, will you please tell me what it is about you that makes you different? And you're going to be ever ready to give them the answer for the hope that is in you. Are you with me? And I believe that's how our churches are going to explode because they are going to explode. It's not going to be the preacher on the pulpit or the preacher on the platform with the mask. Cue sappy music. It's going to happen out in the marketplace, out in the educational field, out in the medical field. It's going to happen. Amen. If you believe, stand up and shout. If you believe, stand up and shout. If you believe, stand up and shout. Hey, hey, let me tell you. How many of you say, John, I'm fed up with doing it in my own ability. I'm one of those 98% I didn't understand that God's grace was his empowerment on my life. What I've been doing in this world, I've been doing in my own ability, and I'm ready to do what Paul did, and that is to count it all done so that I can what? Walk in the resurrection power of his grace. I'm ready to distinguish myself. I'm ready to be 10 times wiser, 10 times more innovative, 10 times more creative. I'm ready to distinguish myself for the glory of Jesus in my world of influence. If that's you and say, that's what I want, raise your hand up high right now. Raise your hand up high. Raise up your other hand. Say this with me. Are you ready? Now the Bible says, come boldly. Doesn't say come sheepishly or timidly. It says come boldly. Are you ready to come boldly? Father, in the name of Jesus. That's that's weak. I want us to be strong. All right? Are you ready? Do you really want? Listen, are do you aspire to receive or are you determined to receive? Yeah, aspire to receive influence. Not, not, yeah. Not, what? Innovation, on, creativity. A little louder. That's the way I want you to pray. Uh, the effectual, fervent prayer of a righteous man avails much. Okay? The yeah, fervency has to do with the shouting level. Okay, are you ready? Do you really want what you're praying for? All right, then let's pray boldly. You ready? Father, in the name of Jesus, thank you for speaking to me and revealing to me from your word that your grace is your empowerment to go beyond my natural ability to distinguish myself for the glory of Jesus to be a light to a dark world to bring salvation the kingdom to my world of influence Father forgive me for doing it my way from this moment forward I'm going to be dependent on your grace I'm asking you 
asking you for your grace to be more innovative, stronger, more creative, wiser than the people that don't know you in my world. Uh, I can't listen to it anymore. This this on oh my goodness. What was that? Do you know did you notice that the only the only couple of times where Jesus was really brought it to bear? I mean, he was uh, Jesus always had an attitude. Jesus was judging you, he, you know, he's going to judge you because you didn't listen and obey a direct revelation from him. You know, and so he has a story, a biography written about your life. And uh, and of course, if you don't uh, if you don't obey him and make your biography, your your reality meet that biography, well, you're going to be judged and you're going to be judged by him if uh, you're not prosperous and hook up your faith pipe so that you can experience prosperity and divine health and other things and and then, of course, the um, you know, he was upset with the apostles too, you know, because they didn't, uh, you know, he expected them to feed the uh, the five thousand, and he ended up having to do it for them. And it was Easter Sunday. That was heresy palooza. Wow, that was. I, I'm gonna have to go do some, find some way to occupy myself to get beyond what I just heard. And the sad thing is, is that wasn't even close to biblical or the gospel. That was the epitome of ripping verses out of context and stringing them together as if they somehow all hung together like that. They don't. And forming your own false theology. Wow. Wow. I... I, I think James McDonald should invite uh, Phil Pringle and uh, and John Bevere to uh, Elephant Room Three. I think they'd fit right in. Wow. Okay. We're at the end of another edition of Fighting for the Faith. Um, if you'd like to email me regarding anything you've heard on this edition or any previous editions of Fighting for the Faith, you could do so. My email address: talkback at fightingforthefaith.com, or you can ask to be my friend on Facebook. It's facebook.com forward slash pirate Christian, or you can follow me on Twitter, my name there, um, at pirate Christian. Till tomorrow, may God richly bless you in the grace and mercy won by Jesus Christ and his vicarious death on the cross for all of your sins. Amen. <laughs>